legally, so even your expertise in evidence would offer little help. And as to the third, it is not in your interest to assist in a trial here, as you wish to extradite the suspect to America for a trial there. So you see, your involvement would at best be unhelpful, and at worst a conflict of interest. I thank you for the courtesy of providing us with your files. But now, you must leave, Mr. Rhyme. Ercole started to blurt, It is Capitano! Spiro shut him off with a glare. Che cosa? Uh, nothing, procuratore. Forgive me. So, you must leave. Apparently prosecutors, or this prosecutor at least, carried more authority than police inspectors when it came to investigations. Rhyme sensed no disagreement on the part of Rossi. He nodded to Sachs. She dug into the shoulder bag and handed the inspector a thick file. Rossi flipped through it. On the top were photos of the evidence and profile charts. He nodded and handed them to Ercole. Put this information on the board, officer. Spiro said, Do you need assistance getting to the airport? Rhyme said, We'll handle our departure arrangements, thank you. He has a private jet, Ercole said, still awestruck. Spiro's mouth tightened, approaching a sneer. The three Americans turned and headed to the door, Ercole escorting them, as Rossi's nod had instructed. Just before they left, though, Rhyme stopped and pivoted back. If I can offer an observation or two. Spiro was stone-faced, but Rossi nodded. Please, does fette di metallo mean bits of metal? Rhyme's eyes were on the chart. Spiro's and Rossi's eyes swiveled to one another's. Slices, yes. Fibre di carta is... Paper fibers? That is correct. Hmm. All right. The composer has changed his appearance. He has shaved his beard, and I am fairly certain his head as well. Now he has the victim hidden in a very old location, and it's deep underground. It's most likely urban rather than rural. The building is not now accessible to the public and hasn't been for some time, but it once was. It's in a neighborhood where prostitutes used to work. They still might. That I couldn't tell you. Ercole, he noted, was staring at him as if mesmerized. Rhyme continued. And one more thing. He won't use UVID again. He uses proxies to hide his IP address, but he's not good at it, and I'm sure he's smart enough to know that. So he'll expect your computer people and UVID security to be on to him. You should start monitoring other upload sites. And tell your tactical people to be ready to move quickly. The victim doesn't have much time at all. As he turned his chair toward the door, he said... Goodbye now. I mean, Arrivederci. Chapter 15 Am I dead? And in Janna? Ali Mazik could honestly not say. He believed he had been a good man, and a good Muslim all his life, and he thought that he had earned a place in paradise. Perhaps not the highest place, Firdaus, reserved for prophets and martyrs and the most devout, but certainly in a respectable locale. Yet, yet, how could heaven be so cold, so damp, so shadowy? Alarm coursed through his body and he shivered only partly from the chill. Was he an Alnar? Perhaps he had gotten everything wrong and had been dispatched straight to hell. He tried to think back to his most recent memory. Someone appearing fast, someone strong and large, and something was pulled over his head, muffling the screams. After that, flashes of light, some strange words, some music, 
And now this, cold, damp, dark, only faint illumination from above. Yes, yes, it could be. Not Jannah, but Alnar. He had a vague sense that perhaps this was hell, yes. Because perhaps he had not lived such a fine life after all. He had not been so good. He'd done evil. He couldn't recall what exactly, but something. Perhaps that was exactly what hell was. An eternity of discomfort spent in a state of believing you had sinned, but not knowing exactly how, since your memory had been destroyed. Then his mind kicked in, his rational, educated mind. No, he couldn't be dead. He was in pain. And he knew that if Allah, praise be to him, had sent him to Alnar, he would be feeling pain far worse than this. If he were in Jannah, he would be feeling no pain at all, but merely the glory of God, praise be to him. So the answer was that he wasn't dead. Which led to, so then, where? Vague memories tumbled through his thoughts. Memories or maybe constructions of his own imagination. Why can't I think more clearly? Why can I remember so little? Images, lying on the ground, smelling grass, the taste of food, the satisfaction of water in his mouth, good cold water and bad tea, olives, a man's hands on his shoulders. Strong, big man, everything going dark. Music, western music. He coughed and his throat hurt. It stung badly. He'd been choked, perhaps. The lack of air had hurt his memory. His head ached, too. Maybe a fall had jumbled his thoughts. Ali Mazik gave up trying to figure out what had happened. He focused on where he was and how to escape. Squinting, he could discern that he was sitting in a chair, bound into a chair in a cylindrical room that measured about six or seven meters across, stone walls, no ceiling. Above was merely a dim emptiness from which the very faint illumination came. The floor, also stone, was pitted and scarred. And what exactly did this room remind him of? What? What? Ah, a memory trickled from a dim recess in his mind, and he was picturing a class trip to a museum in Tripoli. The burial chamber for a Carthaginian holy man. A brief, recent memory flickered again, sipping cold water, eating olives, drinking tea that was sour, made from water shot out of a cappuccino machine steamer, residue of milk in the brew. With somebody? Then the bus stop. Something had happened at a bus stop. What country am I in? Libya? No, he didn't think so. But I am certainly in a burial chamber. The room was silent except for the drip of water somewhere in the chamber. He was gagged, a piece of cloth in his mouth which was covered with tape. Still, he tried calling for help in Arabic. Even if he were elsewhere and a different language was spoken, he hoped the tone of his voice would draw rescuers. But the gag was efficient, and he hardly made any sound whatsoever. Ali now gasped in shock, as there was sudden pressure against his windpipe. What could this be? He couldn't see clearly, and he had no use of his hands, but by twisting his head from side to side and analyzing the sensation, he realized that his head was in a hoop of what seemed to be thin twine. It had just grown slightly tauter. He looked up and to the right. And then he saw it. The device meant to kill him. The cord around his neck traveled upward to a rod stuck into the wall, then over another rod and down to a bucket. The pail was under an old rusted pipe from which water dripped, 
Oh, no, no! God protect me! Praise be to him! He now understood the source of the sounds. Slowly the drops of water were filling the bucket. As it grew heavier, it tugged the noose tighter. The size of the bucket suggested that it would hold easily a half-dozen liters. Mazik didn't know how many kilos that represented, but he suspected that the person who had created this horrible machine did, and that his calculation was accurate enough to make certain that for reasons only God knew, praise be to him, the bucket would soon be more than heavy enough to choke Mazik to death. Ah, wait, are those footsteps? When his breathing slowed, he listened carefully. Had someone heard him? But no, the sound was only the slow plick, plick, plick of water leaching from the ancient pipe and dropping into the bucket. The noose tugged upward once more, and Ali Mazik's muffled pleas for help echoed softly throughout his burial chamber. Chapter 16 Hmph, was sure I'd get a ticket. Tom's handsome face was perplexed. The three Americans were outside the police station, and the aide was staring at the disabled accessible van he'd leased online and picked up at Naples Airport a few hours ago. The battered, dusty vehicle, a modified Mercedes Sprinter, sat more on the sidewalk than in a parking place. It had been the only spot he'd been able to find near the Questura. Sack surveyed the chaotic traffic zipping past and said, Naples doesn't seem like a place that bothers much with parking tickets. Wish we saw that more in Manhattan. Wait here, I'll bring the van over. No, I'd like something to drink. Too much alcohol isn't good when you've been flying. The pressurization. This concern, Rhyme was convinced, was a complete fiction. True, a quadriplegic system is more sensitive than that of a person who isn't disabled, and stress on the body can be a problem. The confused nervous system, conspiring with an equally perplexed cardiovascular network, can sometimes send the blood pressure through the roof, which could result in stroke, additional neurodamage, and death if not treated quickly. Rhyme supposed the cabin pressure might in rare cases lead to this condition, autonomic dysreflexia. But blaming alcohol consumption for increased risk was, he was convinced, a shabby ploy to get him to cut down. He said as much now. Tom fired back. I read about it in a study. Anyway, I was referring to coffee. Besides, what's the hurry? The pilots have gone on to London to ferry those witnesses to Amsterdam. They can't just turn around and fly us back to America. We're spending the night in Naples. We'll go to the hotel. Maybe later, a glass of wine. Small. They had a reservation for a two-bedroom suite at a place Tom had found near the water. Accessible and romantic, the aide had said, drawing an eye roll from Rhyme. Then looking around him, Rhyme said, Coffee, then? I am tired. Look, there's a cafe. He nodded across the street, via Medina. Sachs was watching a low, glistening sports car growl past. Of its make, model, and horsepower, Rhyme had no clue. But to catch her attention, it must have been quite a machine. Her eyes turned back to Rhyme. She said in an edgy voice, Jurisdictional pissing contests. Rhyme smiled. Her mind was still on the case. She continued. Feds versus state in the U.S., here Italy versus America. It happens everywhere, looks like. This is bullshit, Rhyme. Is, yes. You don't look that upset, 
Hmm. She glanced back at the building. We need to stop this guy, damn it. Well, we can still help them from New York. I'll call Rossi when we get back home. He seemed reasonable. More reasonable, at least, than the other one, the prosecutor. Rhyme said, I like the name. Dante Spiro. Coffee? He repeated. As they headed for the place, which seemed to specialize in pastry and gelato, Tom said to Rhyme, You're tired. You should have a tiramisu. The dessert, you know, it means pick-me-up in Italian. Like tea in England gives you energy in the afternoon. Remember, coffee here is what we call espresso. Then there's cappuccino and latte and americano, which is espresso with hot water served in a larger cup. The hostess found a space for them outside, near a metal divider, separating the tables from the rest of the sidewalk. It was covered with a painted banner, probably red when it was installed, now faded pink. It bore the word Cinzano. The server, a laconic woman, mid-twenties, in a dark skirt and white blouse, approached and asked for their order in broken English. Sachs and Tom ordered cappuccino, and the aid of vanilla gelato as well. She turned to Rhyme, who said, Per favore, una grappa grande. Si. She vanished before Tom could protest. Sachs laughed. The aide muttered, You tricked me. It's an ice cream parlor. Who knew they had a liquor license? Rhyme said, I like Italy. And where did you learn the Italian? How do you even know what grappa is? Fromer's Guide to Italy, Rhyme said. I put my time on the plane to good use. You were sleeping, I noticed. Which you should have been doing, too. The beverages came, and with his right hand, Rhyme lifted the glass and sipped. It's refreshing, I would say an acquired taste. Tom reached for it. If you don't like it, Rhyme moved his hand away. I need a chance to complete my acquisition. The server was nearby and had overheard. She said in halting English, Aha, we are not having the best grappa here. Her tone was apologetic. But go to a bigger restaurant and they will offer more and better grappa. Distillato, too. It is like grappa. You must have them both. The best are from Barolo in Piemonte and Veneto, the north, but that is my opinion. Where is it are you visiting from? New York. Ah, New York. Eyes shining. The Manhattan? Yes, Sachs said. I will go someday. I have been to Disney with my family in Florida. Someday I will go to New York. I want to skate on the ice at Rockefeller Center. It is possible doing that all the time. Only the winter, Tom said. Allora, thank you. Rhyme took another sip of grappa. This taste was mellower now, but he was determined to try one of the better varieties. His eyes remained where they had largely been, on the front of police headquarters. He finished the sip and had another. Tom, clearly enjoying his dessert and coffee, said with a suspicious look in his eyes, You seem a lot better now, less tired. Yes, miraculous. Though impatient about something, true he was. About? About that, Rhyme said, as Sax's phone hummed. She frowned. No caller ID. Answer. We know who it is. We do? And on speaker. She pressed the screen and said, 
Hello? Detective Sachs? Yes? Yes, yes, I am uh, Massimo Rossi. Pay, Rhyme said to Tom, finishing the grappa. And Captain Rhyme? Rossi asked. Inspector? I hope I might catch you nearby. A cafe across the street, having some grappa. A pause. Well, I must tell you that the composer's video has been uploaded. You were correct. Not on Uvid. It was on Nowchat. When? Rhyme asked. The timestamp was twenty minutes ago. Ah, Rossi said, please, Captain Rhyme, I think you are not the sort of man to play games. Clearly not. I have discussed the matter with Prosecutor Spiro, and we were, to say the least, impressed at your observations. Deductions, not observations. Yes, of course. Allora, we decided we might ask you, changing our ideas, if you would in fact be willing to... We'll be in your offices in five minutes. Chapter 17 At Rhyme's suggestion, insistent suggestion, the Situation Room was moved from upstairs to a larger conference room in the basement near the Scientific Police Laboratory. The lab was efficiently constructed. There was a sterile area where trace was extracted and analyzed, and a larger section for fingerprints, tread and shoe prints, and other work where contamination would not be a risk. The conference room opened onto this latter part of the lab. Rhyme, Sachs, and Tom were here with Rossi and the tall, rangy Ercole Benelli. Two others were present, uniformed officers, though in blue outfits, different from Ercole's, the light gray. They were a young patrolman, Giacomo Schiller, and his apparent partner, Daniela Canton, both blonde, she darker than he. They were serious of expression and attentive to Rossi, who spoke to them like a grandfather, kindly, but one you made sure to obey. They were, Rossi explained, with the flying squad, which corresponded, Rhyme deduced, to the patrol officers assigned to squad cars, remote mobile patrols in NYPD jargon. Rhyme asked, And Dante Spiro? Procuratore Spiro had other matters to attend to. So the temperamental man had reluctantly agreed to let the Americans return, but wanted nothing to do with them. Fine with rhyme. He was not quite sure about this Italian arrangement of the district attorney's active involvement in the investigation. It probably wasn't a conflict of interest, and Spiro seemed sharp enough. No, rhyme's objection could be summed up in a dreaded cliché. Too many cooks. Ercole was setting up the easels and charts and translating from Italian to English. In the doorway advising him was round, no-nonsense Beatrice Renza, a senior analyst in the lab. Her name, Rhyme learned, was pronounced Beatrice. Italian took some getting used to, certainly, but was far more melodic than blunt English. She spoke to Ercole in clipped, rapid Italian, and he grimaced and responded testily, apparently to some objection about a translation or characterization of something he was writing. She rolled her eyes behind elaborate glasses, then stepped forward to take the marker from him and make a correction. School marm, Rhyme thought. But then, so am I. He was admiring her professional style and her skill in extracting the evidence. 
The breakdown of the trace was excellent. Daniela and Giacomo finished setting up a large laptop. She nodded to Rossi, who said, Here is the video. Giacomo tapped keys, and the screen came to life. In lightly accented English, Daniela said, The site had taken down the video. It's against their policy to show graphic violence. In Italy, that can be a crime. But at our request, they sent a copy to us. Were there comments by viewers on the page where it was posted? Sachs asked. About the video? Rossi explained, We hoped, too, what you are suggesting, yes, that the composer might respond to a comment and we might learn more. But that has not been the case. The video site has left the page up, again at our request, without the video. And Giacomo here is monitoring comments. But he has remained silent, the composer. The young man gave a sour laugh. It is a sad state. The comments mostly are people angry that the video is down. The audience wants to see a man die. He nodded toward the computer. Ecco. They all stared at the screen. The video showed a dimly lit room, walls apparently damp, dotted with mold. The gagged victim, a slim man, dark complexioned, with a beard, sat in a chair, a thin noose around his neck. The cord, another musical instrument string, disappeared up out of the scene. It was not very tight. The man was unconscious. The video, like the one in New York, included only music played on a keyboard, presumably a new Casio or something similar. This tune, too, was in 3-4 waltz time. And, as in the earlier video, the downbeat was a man's gasp. And as the visual grew darker, the music and inhalations grew slower. Cristo, Ercole whispered, though he had presumably seen it at least once before. He looked toward Daniela, who regarded the video impassively. Ercole cleared his throat and put on a stoic face. The music was familiar, but Rhyme couldn't place it. He mentioned this. The others seemed surprised. It was Tom who said, The Waltz of the Flowers, Nutcracker. No. Rhyme listened to jazz occasionally. There was something intriguing about how improvisation could find a home in the mathematical absolute of a musical composition. It was how he approached crime scene work. But in general, music, like most arts, was largely a waste of time to Lincoln Rhyme. The victim stirred as dirt or stones trickled onto his shoulder from the wall or ceiling, but did not come to. The screen grew dimmer, the music slower. Finally, it went black, and the soundtrack ended. The perverse copyright notice came up on the screen. Rhyme asked, Metadata? Information embedded in pictures and videos about the work itself. Type of camera, focal length, date and time, speed and aperture settings, sometimes even the GPS location. This had been removed from the New York video, but perhaps the composer failed to do so here. Rossi said, None. The postal police said it was re-encoded and all the data stripped out. Postal police? It is our telecommunications arm. Rossi stared at the black screen for a moment. How much time do you think we have? Rhyme shook his head. Any suggestion would be simply a guess, a waste of effort. Sachs mused. How does the gallows work? Something off camera will pull the noose up. A weight or something. They looked at the video for any clue, but saw nothing. 
Well, let us move now, see if we can solve this puzzle. Captain Rhyme. How did I draw my conclusions I told you about? Yes, that's where we should start. Nodding toward the now-translated chart, Rhyme said, The trace, of course. Now the substance with the propylene glycol or shaving cream. With the blood, it's a reasonable conclusion that he cut himself shaving. To change his appearance as much as he can, he'd lose the hair and beard. The shaved head look seems popular here in Italy. Now the indole, scatol, and thiol are excrement. A glance toward the chart once more. Those are shit. With the paper fiber? Human shit, of course. No other creatures I know wipe. It's old shit, quite old, desiccated. You can see in the picture, and of several different types. See the color and texture variations? I would speculate there's a sewer nearby, one that might not have been used for some time. The animal hairs are from a rat. It's shedding because it's scratching. It has a skin irritation. The Bartonella bacteria are causing that. The particular strain is the one that most commonly infects rats. Rats and sewers, well, you find them everywhere, but more often in cities than smaller towns, so urban setting. Bene, said Beatrice Renza. The iron shavings tell me the composer cut a lock or chain to get access to the place. Iron isn't used much anymore, most locks are steel, so it's old. With the rust on only one side, you can see it there, that photo, it was recently cut. Rossi said, You suggested it used to have public access in the past? Yes, because of the rubber. The rubber? Ercole asked. He seemed to be memorizing all that Rhyme said. What else would be vulcanized? Translucent, decomposing shreds. Vulcanized rubber. It was Beatrice who nodded. They are the old condoms, might it not be? Exactly. Hardly a romantic trysting place with the rat neighbors and sewers, but perfect for streetwalkers. Rhyme shrugged. They're bold deductions. But we have a man who's about to be strangled to death. I don't think we have time to be timid. So what does this tell you about where the victim might be? Underground in Naples? Of course, a deserted area. Rossi said, Not many of those here. We are a very crowded city. Beatrice said, And Naples has more underground passages and walkways than any other city in Italy, perhaps than Europe, kilometers after kilometers. Ercole disagreed. But not so many where access is in deserted places. The lab analyst muttered to him, Yes, I would think so. We must find other ways to narrow these concerns down. Rhyme said, A map. There has to be a map of underground locations. Historical documents, Daniela offered. With a smile, Ercole said to her, Yes, of course, from a library or a college or a historical society. Rhyme turned to him, and his eyebrow rose. Ercole hesitated and said, Is that wrong? It was just a suggestion. Rossi said, I think, Ercole, that Captain Rhyme is not questioning your thought, which is a good, if obvious, one, but your delay in providing such maps. Oh, yes, yes, of course. Sachs told him, Go online. We don't have time for you to prowl through libraries like the Da Vinci Code. Must have been a book, Rhyme supposed, or movie. Sachs asked Beatrice, You mentioned the underground passages here. Are there walking tours? Yes, she replied. 
My sister's children, we are going on such tours. Several, uh, three times. Hercule, Rhyme called. Download all those tour routes, too. Yes, I will. You mean so that we can eliminate those areas from our underground search? Of course, he would avoid places with tourists. I want to orient myself. A map of the city. We need a map. Rossi spoke to Daniela, who vanished, then returned a moment later with a large fold-out map. She taped it to the wall. How are we coming, Ercole? I... there are quite a few underground areas of the city. I didn't realize how... come si dice... how extensive the passages are. As I was saying, Beatrice offered to Ercole. Some are contradictory, indicated on one map, but not another. I would think certain underground areas will have been filled in. A construction, Rossi said. To rhyme Saxon Tom, he said, This is a problem in Italy. A real estate man wishes to build an office or apartments, and as soon as the excavation is started, a Roman, or here often a Greek, ruin is discovered, and all construction comes to a stopping. Give me something to work with, Hercule. We need to get on this. I have some, a few passageways, old buildings, grain storage, warehouses, even some caves that are promising. He looked up. How do I print? He asked Daniela. Here. She leaned over him. She typed, and a moment later, the Hewlett-Packard in the corner came to life. Rhyme didn't know why he was surprised. Perhaps because he was in an ancient city, looking at ancient maps. Wireless printing routers seemed out of place. Sachs fished the pages from the tray and handed them to Daniela. Rhyme instructed, Draw the passages on the map. Tutti? All of them? Except the ones that seem to be bricked off. In her firm, swift strokes, she outlined the extensive networks. Rhyme said, Now add public works, sewers, but just the older ones from historical maps. Old shit, remember? And open, not enclosed pipes. The composer stepped in the trace. The young officer began a new search. The maps Ercole found were obviously incomplete, but they showed some sewage sluices that had been in operation in the 18th and 19th centuries. Daniela put these on the map. Okay, now, eliminate the walking tour routes, Rhyme instructed. Ercole printed out the website information from Underground Naples, See History Up Close, and a half dozen others. Daniela noted the routes, and marked off any that coincided with the passageways and sewers they'd found. Still, miles and miles of places to stash the victim remained. Rossi said, And an area where prostitutes worked, you are suggesting? He looked at Giacomo, who gazed at the map and said, I have patrolled, you would say in Vice Squad, many of the areas where working women and men are found. The Spanish quarters, Piazza Garibaldi, Corso Umberto, Gianturco, Piazzale Tecchio, the San Paolo Stadium, Via Terracina, Fuori Grotta, Agnano and Corso Lucci. These are active now. The Domiziana, or now Domitiana, area, north and west of Naples, was known historically for prostitution and still is. But it's very congested, and the population is mostly immigrant. It would be hard for the composer to get his victim there, and no underground passages are nearby. Rhyme said, Circle the first areas you've mentioned, officer. Giacomo took the marker from Daniela and did so. 
This narrowed down the number of passageways and chambers to about two dozen. What are they exactly? Sachs asked. Rossi said, Roman roads and alleyways and sidewalks before they were built over. Tunnels for delivery of merchandise to avoid the congested streets. Water reservoirs and aqueducts. Grain warehouses. Water? Yes, the Romans built the best water delivery infrastructura in the world. Then Rhyme called, Beatrice, he found limestone and lead. She didn't understand, and Ercole translated. See, yes, we did. There it is, you can see. Were the old Roman aqueducts limestone? Yes, they were, and as you are suggesting, I believe the pipes, shifting the water, transporting the water to the fountains and the homes and the buildings, were lead, now replaced, of course, for healthy reasons. Ercole? Maps of Roman water supplies? The document was readily available in the historical archives. Ercole handed the printout to Daniela. He pointed to the document and said, Here I have ten Roman water-holding chambers in the areas we have marked. They are like large wells or silos, round. These were connected to aqueducts coming into the city from the north and west. Some of them are large municipal reservoirs, twenty by twenty meters, and some are those serving smaller areas or individual homes, much smaller. When the supply of water became more modern and pumping stations were created, many of these reservoirs were converted to warehouses and storerooms. Doors and windows were carved into the walls. Daniela marked them. Rhyme. I want to see the video again. The image came onto the screen once more. Look at the wall, the stone. Is it a water reservoir? It might be, Ercole shrugged. Carved stone, stained, and if converted, it could have had a doorway cut for access. There, that shadow suggests there is a doorway. Sachs said, We've narrowed it to nine or ten locations. Can we do a search of them all? Get a hundred officers? Rossi seemed uncomfortable. We do not have the resources I would like. He explained that there'd just been reports of potential terror attacks in Italy and other parts of Europe recently, and many officers had been pulled off non-terror crimes. Rhyme had the video played once more. The stone, the noose, the unconscious victim, his chest rising slowly, the trickle of dust, the... Ah, look at that. His voice was a whisper. But everyone in the room turned to him immediately. He grimaced. I saw it before, but didn't think a damn thing of it. What, Rhyme? The dust and pebbles falling from the wall. Sachs and Ercole spoke simultaneously. She. Subway! He. Rete Metropolitana! A train's shaking the walls. Ercole, quick! What lines run through the areas we've marked? He called up a subway system schematic on the laptop. Looking it over, Daniela drew the transit lines on their working map. There! Rossi called. That water reservoir, the small one. It was a room about fifteen by fifteen feet, just off to the side of an aqueduct. It was accessed by a passageway that ran to a street by a square on Viale Margherita. Giacomo added, I know that area. That reservoir would be in the basement of an old building now abandoned. Prostitutes could have used the passages years ago, yes. Abandoned, Rhyme said so the doors might be sealed with lock and chain the composer cut through. 
That's the rust and the slices of metal. I'll call the SCO, Rossi said. Daniela offered. Servizio Centrale Operativo. Our SWAT force. Rossi spoke for several minutes, giving firm orders, then hung up. The central office is assembling a team. Sachs met Rhyme's eyes. He nodded. She asked, How far away is that? She stabbed the map, the entrance around which Daniela had drawn a red circle. No more than a few kilometers from us. I'm going, Sachs announced. After a brief hesitation, Rossi said, Yes, certainly. He looked to Giacomo and Daniela, and the three had a brief conversation in Italian. Rossi translated. Their vehicle is with other officers. Ercole, you drive Detective Sachs. Me? You. As they started for the door, Rhyme said, Give her a weapon. What? Rossi asked. I don't want her in the field without a weapon. That's irregular. We are not people who are well with irregularness. She's an NYPD detective and a competitive shooter. Rossi considered the request. Then he said, I am not aware of the agreement we have with the United States, but I authorized gendarme in pursuit of a criminal from France to enter Campania armed. I will do the same now. He vanished and returned a few minutes later with a plastic pistol container. He jotted the number from the case onto a form and opened it. This is a Beretta 96, she said, the A1 40 caliber. She took it and pointed it downward, moving the slide slightly to verify it was empty. She took two black magazines and the box of ammunition that Rossi had also brought. A sign here, and where it says rank and affiliation, those words there write something illegible. But please, Detective Sachs, do not shoot anyone if you can avoid it. I'll do my best. She scrawled where he'd indicated, slipped in a mag and worked the slide to chamber around. Then making sure it was unsafe, she slipped the weapon into her back waistband. She hurried to the door. Ercole looked from Daniela to Rossi. Should I? Rhyme said, Go! You should go! Chapter 18 That's it? Amelia Sachs asked as they ran from the Questura. That's your car? Yes, yes. Ercole was beside a small, boxy vehicle called a Megan, soft blue, dusty, and dinged. He began to walk to her side and open the door for her. I'm fine, she waved him off. Let's go. The young officer climbed into the driver's seat, and she dropped into the passenger's. It's not much, I'm sorry to say, he gave a rueful smile. The flying squad actually had two Lamborghinis. One was in an accident a few years ago, so I'm not sure if they still have both of them. It's a marked police car. What a- We should move. Of course. He started the engine. He put the shifter in first, signaled to the left and looked over his shoulder, waiting for a gap in traffic. Sachs said, I'll drive. What? She slipped the shifter into neutral and yanked up on the brake, then leapt out. Ercole said, I should ask, do you have a license? There are probably forms to be filled out, I suppose. Then she was at the left-hand door, pulling it open. He climbed out. She said, you can navigate. Ercole scurried around the car and dropped into the other seat, 
and she settled into the right, not needing to adjust the seat's position. He was taller, and it was as far back as it might go. She glanced at him. Seatbelt. Oh, here no one cares. A chuckle. And they never give you a ticket. Put it on. All right, I will. Just as it clicked, she slammed the gears into first, fed the engine a slug of gas and popped the clutch, darting into a minuscule gap in traffic. One car swerved and another braked. Both honked. She didn't bother to look back. Mamma mia, Ercole whispered. Where do I go? Straight on this road for a kilometer. Where are your lights? There, he pointed to a switch, the headlights. Now I mean the flashers. You have blue here in Italy? Blue? Oh, police lights. I don't have them. He gasped as she zipped into a space between a truck and a trio of motorcyclists. This is my personal car. Ah, and how much horsepower? Eighty? Ercole said. No, no, it's closer to a hundred. One ten, in fact. Be still my heart, she thought, but said nothing. Amelia Sachs would never tarnish anyone's image of his own wheels. You don't have flashers in your personal cars? The police of state might. Inspector Rossi and Daniela. I am, as you know, with the Forestry Corps. We do not. At least none of the officers I work with do. Oh, we are to turn soon. Which street and which way? Left, that one up there. But I didn't prepare. I'm sorry. I don't think we can get over in time. They got over in time. And took the ninety degrees in a screaming second gear. He gasped. Next turn? Half a kilometer to the right, Via Letizia. He inhaled harshly as she accelerated to eighty kilometers per hour, weaving into and out of all four lanes. Will they reimburse you, the police of state? It's only a few euros for the mileage, hardly worth the effort of the forms. She'd been referring to repairing the transmission, but decided not to bring that up. Anyway, how much damage could a hundred horses do to a tranny? Here is the turn, via Letizia. The road grew congested. Rear ends and brake lights loomed. She was skidding to a stop, using both brakes inches from the jam. A blast of horn. Nobody moved. Hold your badge up, she told him. His smile said the gesture would do no good. She hit the horn again and guided the car over the curb and along the sidewalk. Furious faces turned toward her, though the expressions of some of the younger men switched from indignant anger to amusement and even admiration when they noted the insane driver was a beautiful redhead. She breached the intersection and turned as Ercole had instructed, then roared forward. Call, she instructed. See if the... What's the name of your tack outfit again? Tack? Sorry, tactical. See where they are. Oh, SCO. He pulled out his phone and placed a call. Like most of the conversations she'd heard so far, this one unfolded lightning fast. It ended with a clipped, Ciao, 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 ciao. He gripped the dash as she shot between two trucks and said, They're assembled and on the way. It should be fifteen minutes. How far are we? Cinque. I mean, five. Sax was grimacing. Can't somebody be there any faster? We'll need a breaching team. The composer would have locked the doorway or gate again. He did that in New York. They'll probably think of that. Tell them anyway. Another call. And she could tell from the tone, if not the words, 
that there was nothing to do to expedite the arrival of the tactical force. They have hammers and cutters and the torch. A fast shift, fourth to second. She punched the accelerator. The engine howled. A phrase of her father's came to mind. A bylaw of her life. When you move, they can't get you. But just then, a blonde teenager, his long curls flying in the breeze, steered a peppy orange scooter through a stoplight, oblivious to any traffic. Shit! In a blur of appendages, Sax used the gears, the footbrake, and the handbrake to decelerate and then skid around the Honda, missing the kid by inches. He didn't even notice. Sax saw he wore earbuds. Then first gear, and they were on their way once more. Left! Here! Ercole was shouting over the screams of his laboring engine. It was a narrow street they were speeding along. Residential, no stores. Pale laundry hung above them like flags. Then into a square around a tiny anemic park, on whose scarred benches sat a half-dozen older men and women, a younger woman with a baby carriage, and two children playing with scruffy dogs. It was a deserted area, and the composer could easily have slipped the victim out of his car and underground without anyone seeing. There, that's it, he announced, pointing to a shabby wooden doorway in the abandoned building Giacomo Schiller had referred to. This, like all the building facades nearby, was covered with graffiti. You could just make out the faded sign, Non Entrare. Sachs brought the Megan to a stop twenty feet from the door, leaving room for the tactical officers and ambulance. She hurried out. Ercole was close behind her. Jogging again, but carefully. Sachs kept a close monitor on her legs. She suffered from arthritis, which had become so severe she'd nearly been sidelined from her beloved profession. Surgery had removed much, if not all, of the pain. Still, she always stayed mindful. The body can betray at any moment. But now all functioned smoothly. You're new to this, right? To entry? Entry? That answered the question. She'd learned enough. First, we secure the site, make it safe from hostiles. It doesn't help the victim, even if he's seconds away from dying, if we die too, okay? See, when it's clear, we try to save him. CPR, open airways if we can, apply pressure to stop bleeding, though I don't think blood loss is going to be a problem. After that, we secure the crime scene to preserve evidence. All right. Ah, uh, no. What? I forgot the booties for our shoes. You are supposed to... We don't wear those now. They're too slippery. Here. She dug into her pocket and handed him rubber bands. On the ball of your feet. You carry those with you? They both donned the elastic. Gloves? He asked. Latex gloves? Sachs smiled. No, not in tactical situations. The door, she was surprised to see, was barred with the cheapest of locks and a hasp that was affixed to the wooden door and frame with small screws. She dug into her pocket, and the switchblade was in her hand. Ercole's eyes went wide. Sax smiled to herself, as the thought occurred that the weapon was Italian. A Frank Beltrame stiletto, a four-inch blade, staghorn handle. She flicked it open, and in one deft move, pulled the bracket away from the wood, then tucked the knife away. Holding her finger to her lips, she studied Ercole's nervous, sweaty face, some of the consternation was from the harrowing drive. The source of the remainder was clear. He was willing, but he was not battle-tested. Stay behind me, she whispered. 
yes, yes, which came out more as a breath than words. She pulled a halogen flashlight from her pocket, a tiny but powerful thousand lumen model, a Phoenix PD-35. Ercole squinting, surely thinking, rubber bands, flashlight, flick blade knife, these Americans certainly came prepared. A nod toward the door. His Adam's apple bobbed. She pushed inside, raising the light in the gun. There was a startling crash. The door had struck a table, spilling a large bottle of San Pellegrino mineral water. He's here, Ercole whispered. Not necessarily, but assume he is. He may have set up the table to warn him somebody breached. We have to go fast. The entryway atmosphere was pungent, the walls covered with graffiti. It resembled a cave in some wilderness rather than a man-made structure. A stairway led down two flights. They went slowly. The halogen would give them away, but it was their only source of illumination. A fall down these steep stones could be fatal. Listen, she said, pausing at the bottom. She believed she'd heard a moan or grunt, but then nothing. They found themselves in an old brick tunnel about eight feet around. The aqueduct, a square-bottomed trough about two feet across, ran through the middle. It was largely dry, though old iron pipes overhead, the ceiling was six feet above them, dripped water. Ercole pointed to their left. The reservoir would be there if the map is correct. A rumbling began in the distance and grew in volume. The floor shook. Sachs supposed that it was the subway nearby, she recalled from the map, but it also occurred to her that this was near Mount Vesuvius, whose volcano, she'd read, might erupt at any time. Volcanoes equal earthquakes, even the smallest of which might pin her under rubble and leaving her to die the worst death imaginable. Claustrophobia was her big fear. But the roaring rose to a crescendo, then faded. Subway. Okay. They arrived at a fork, the tunnel splitting into three branches, each with its own aqueduct. Where? I'm sorry, I do not know. This part was not on the map. Pick one, she thought. And then she saw that the left branch of the tunnel contained not only an aqueduct, but a terracotta pipe, largely broken. Probably an old sewer drain. She was recalling the scatological trace from the composer's shoes. This way. She began along the damp floor, the smell of mold trickling her throat and reminding her of the uranium processing factory in Brooklyn, site of the composer's first murder attempt. Where are you? She thought to the victim. Where? They pressed on, walking carefully in the aqueduct until the tunnel ended, in a large, dingy basement, lit dimly from air shafts and from fissures in the ceiling. The aqueduct continued on arched columns to a round stone cylindrical structure, twenty feet across, twenty high. There was no ceiling. A door had been cut into the side. That's it, Ercole whispered. The reservoir. They climbed off the aqueduct and down stone stairs to the floor, about ten feet below. Yes, she could hear a gasping sound from inside. Sachs motioned Ercole to cover the aqueduct they'd come down and the other doorways that opened off the basement. He understood and drew his pistol. His awkward grip told her he rarely shot, but he checked that a round was chambered and the safety catch off, and he was aware of where the muzzle was pointed. Good enough. A deep breath, another. 
Then she spun around the corner, keeping low, and played the light through the room. The victim was fifteen feet from her, sitting taped in a rickety chair, straining to keep his head raised against the upward tension of the noose. She saw clearly now the mechanism the composer had rigged, the noose running up to a wooden rod hammered into a crack in the wall above the victim's head, then to another rod, and finally down to a bucket filling with water. The weight in the pail would eventually tug the noose tight enough to strangle him. He squinted, his eyes closed against the brilliance of the flashlight. The room had no other doors, and it was clear that the composer wasn't present. Come inside, cover the door, she barked. See. She holstered her weapon and ran to the man who was sobbing. She pulled the gag out of his mouth. Say to me, say to me. You'll be okay, wondering how much English he spoke. She had gloves with her, but didn't bother now. Beatrice could print her later to eliminate her friction ridges. She gripped the noose and pulled down, which lifted the bucket, and then she slipped the noose over his head. Slowly, she lowered the bucket. Before it reached the floor, though, the stick wedged into a gap between the stones gave way, and the pail fell to the floor. Hell, the water would contaminate any trace on the stone. But nothing to do now. She turned to the poor man and examined him. His panicked eyes stared from her to the tape binding his arms up to the ceiling and back to her. You'll be okay. An ambulance is coming. You understand? English? He nodded. Yes, yes. He didn't look badly hurt. Now that he was okay, Sachs pulled on latex gloves. She removed her switchblade once more, hit the button. It sprang open. The man recoiled. It's all right. She cut the tape and freed his hands, then feet. The victim's eyes were wide and unfocused. He rambled in Arabic. What's your name? Sachs asked. She repeated the question in Arabic. All NYPD officers in major cases who had occasion to work counterterrorism knew a half dozen words and phrases. Ali, Ali Mazik. Are you injured anywhere, Mr. Mazik? My throat. It is my throat. He took to rambling again, and his eyes darted once more. Ercole said, he doesn't seem too injured. No. He is, it seems, quite disoriented, though. Tied up by a madman and nearly hanged in an old Roman ruin? No surprises there. Let's get him upstairs. Chapter 19 The tactical team arrived. A dozen SCO officers. They appeared in deadly earnest and were fully confident they scanned the area and gripped their weapons like true craftsmen. Sachs stopped them at the entrance. She was wearing the NYPD shield on her belt, gold for detective, which gave her some authority, ambiguous though it might be. The commander asked, FBI? A thick accent. Like that, she said, which seemed to satisfy him. The man was large of body and large of head, which was covered with a fringe of curly red hair about the same shade as hers. He nodded to her and said, Michelangelo Frasca. Amelia Sachs. He vigorously shook her hand. She gestured past him to the arriving medical team, a burly man and a woman nearly as imposing, they might have been siblings, and they sat Mazik on a gurney and took his vitals. The medic spent a moment examining the red ligature mark and said something in Italian to his partner and then to Sachs. He's okay, he's good. In physicalness. His mind, very groggy. 
drunk, I would say, if he was not Muslim. Maybe it is being drugs the assaulted used. They assisted Mazik into the back of the ambulance and had a conversation with Ercole. He spoke at length to Michelangelo, presumably about what had happened. He gestured toward the entrance. I have told them where to search and that the killer may still be nearby. Sachs noted that the men wore black gloves, so she wasn't worried about fingerprints and hoods, which would prevent hair contamination. She dug into her pocket and handed Michelangelo a dozen rubber bands. He looked at her quizzically. Fai così, Ercole said, pointing to his feet. The commander nodded and his eyes seemed impressed. Per le nostre impronte. Si. Buono, a laugh. Americana. Tell them to walk quickly through the entrance room where we found the table and water bottle and to avoid the chamber where we got the victim. That's where most of the evidence will be and we don't want it contaminated anymore. Ercole relayed the information and the big man nodded. He then quickly deployed his troops. She heard voices behind them. A large crowd had gathered, among them reporters calling questions. The police ignored the journalists. Uniformed officers strung yellow tape, as in America, and kept back the crowd. Another van arrived, large and white. The words Polizia Scientifica were on the side. Two men and a woman climbed out and walked to the double doors in the back, opened them. They dressed in white Tyvek jumpsuits, the name of the unit on the right breast and the words Spray Guard over the left. They approached a uniformed officer who pointed to Sachs and Ercole. The three approached and spoke with Ercole, who, she could tell from his gestures, told them about the scene. The woman glanced at Sachs once or twice during the lengthy explanation. Sachs said, If I can borrow a suit, I'll search with them. I can show them exactly where— A man's voice interrupted her. That is not necessary. Sachs turned to see the prosecutor, Dante Spiro. He was approaching from behind a clutch of uniformed officers and cars. One officer leapt forward and lifted the yellow tape for him, high so that Spiro did not have to bow down. Procuratore, Ercole began. The man cut him off with a stream of Italian. The young officer said nothing, but looked down and nodded every few seconds as Spiro continued to speak to him. Ercole said something, nodding to Mazik, sitting in the back of the ambulance now, looking much better. Again, Spiro shot words his way, clearly unhappy. Si, procuratore. Then the young officer turned to her. He says we can leave now. I'd like to search with the team. No, that is not possible, Spiro said. I'm a crime scene officer by profession. Michelangelo appeared in the dim doorway. He spotted Spiro and approached. He spoke to him for a moment. Ercole translated. They have finished the search. No sign of the composer. They've gone down all the aqueducts and searched all the rooms in the basement. There is a supply tunnel that leads to the subway station. No sign he was anywhere there. The building above the basement. She nodded to the structure behind them. Michelangelo said, Is sealed off with concretes. No entrance is possible from Sottoterra. As the woman forensic officer walked past her, she said with a smile, We're going to step the grid. Sachs blinked. Yes, we know who you are. We use Ispettore Lincoln Rhymes' book in our lessons. It is not in Italian, but we took turns translating. You are both an inspiration. Welcome to Italy. They vanished through the doorway.
Sphero fired another dozen sentences to Ercole, then walked off toward the ancient doorway, pulling on his own blue latex gloves. Ercole translated. Procuratore Spiro appreciates your assistance and your offer to help with the scene, but he thinks it would be best, for continuity's sake, if the investigation is conducted by Italian law enforcement. Sachs decided that to push the matter further would merely embarrass Ercole. He looked desperately to the Megan and lifted a hand to her shoulder, as if to direct her toward it. Her glance at him had the effect of lowering the limb as if it were in freefall, and she knew he would never try to usher her anywhere again. As they approached the car, he looked tentatively at the driver's seat. Sachs said, You drive. To Ercole's great relief. She handed him the keys. Once she and Ercole were settled and the engine running, she asked, That line you gave me about continuity, is that what Spiro really said? Ercole was blushing and concentrating on getting the car in first gear. It was a rough translation. Ercole? He swallowed. He said, I was to get the woman, that is you, out of the scene immediately, and if I let her, that is again you, talk to any officers again, much less the press, without his express permission, he would have my job. Here, and in my own unit of forestry. Sachs nodded, then asked, Was woman the word he really used? After a pause, no, it was not. He signaled, let up on the clutch, then pulled gingerly into the street surrounding the square, as if his frail grandmother were sitting in the back seat. Chapter 20 Stunned that was Rhyme's impression of Ali Mazik. In the Situation Room at police headquarters, Rhyme was watching the kidnapped victim through open doorways, across the hall, an empty ground-floor office. The scrawny man sat in a chair, clutching a bottle of Aranciata San Pellegrino soda. He'd already drunk one of the orange beverages, and several small drops dotted his beard. His face was gaunt, though this would be his natural state, Rhyme supposed, since his ordeal had been only a day or so in length. Dark circles under his eyes, prominent ears and nose, and that impressive mass of wiry black hair that wholly enveloped his scalp and lower face. Rossi, Ercole, and Sachs were with Rhyme. There was little for Tom to do at the moment, so he'd left to check into the hotel and make sure the disabled accessibility was at the place. There was little for Tom to do at the moment, so he'd left to check into the hotel and make sure the disabled accessibility was as the place claimed. For a half hour, Mazik had been interviewed by a police of state officer, who was fluent in Arabic and English. Sachs had wanted to be present, or to conduct her own interview, but Rossi had declined her request. Dante Spiro would have been behind that. Finally, the officer concluded the interview and joined the others. He handed Rossi his notes, then returned to the office across the hall. He spoke to Mazik, who still seemed bewildered. He slowly rose and followed the officer down the corridor. He clutched his orange soda as if it were a lucky charm. Rossi said, He will stay here in protective custody for the time being. He is remaining in a, how do you say, a state? Confused state. Better that we keep an eye on him. And with the composer still out in the world, we do not know for certain that Mazik is safe. There is, of course, no motive that we can see. Who is he? Sachs asked. 
He is an asylum seeker from Libya, one of so many. He came here on a ship that crashed. He frowned and spoke to Ercole, who said, Beached. See, beached in Baia a week ago, a resort area northwest of Naples. He and forty others arrived there and were arrested. They had good fortune. The weather was good. They survived, all of them. That very day a ship sank off Lampedusa, and a dozen died. Sachs said, If he'd been arrested, why was he out free in the countryside? A very good question, Rossi said. Perhaps it is helpful to explain our situation in Italy with regard to refugees. You are aware of the immigrants coming out of Syria, inundating Turkey and Greece and Macedonia? Current events held little interest for Rhyme, but the plight of refugees in the Middle East was everywhere in the news. He'd actually just read an article about the subject on the long flight from the United States. We have a similar problem here. It's a long, dangerous journey to Italy from Syria, but a less long trip from Egypt, Libya, and Tunisia. Libya is an utterly failed state. After the Arab Spring, it became a land of civil war, with extremists on the rise, ISIS and other groups. There is terrible poverty, too, in addition to the political turmoil. Adding to the problem, the drought and famine in sub-Saharan Africa are driving refugees from the south into Libya, which can hardly accommodate them. So human smugglers, who are also rapists and thieves, charge huge sums to ferry people to Lampedusa, which I mentioned. It is Italy's closest island to Africa, he sighed. I used to vacation with my family in there when I was a boy. Now I would never take my own children. So the smugglers bring the poor asylum seekers there. Others, if they pay a premium, will be taken to the mainland, like Mazik, in hopes they can avoid arrest. But like him, most are caught, though it is an overwhelming challenge for the army, navy, and the police. He looked toward Rhyme. It has not touched your country as much, but here it is a crisis of great proportions. The article Rhyme had read on the plane was about a conference presently underway in Rome on the refugee situation. The attendees from all over the world were looking for ways to balance the humanitarian need to help the unfortunates on the one hand, and the concerns about economic hardship and security in the destination countries on the other. Among the emergency measures under consideration, the story said, the U.S. Congress was considering a bill to allow 150,000 immigrants into the country, and Italy itself was soon to vote on a measure to relax deportation laws, though both proposals were controversial and were being met with strong opposition. Algimazik is typical of these people. Under the Dublin regulation on asylum seeking, he was required to apply for asylum in his first country of entry, Italy. He was run through Eurodac and... Dactyloscopy? Rhyme asked. The technical term for fingerprinting. It was Ercole who answered, Yes, that is correct. Refugees are fingerprinted and undergo a background check. Rossi continued. So this is Mazik's situation. He passed the initial review. No criminal or terrorist connections. If so, he would have been deported immediately. But he was cleared, so he was removed from the intake camp and placed in a secondary site. These are hotels or old military barracks. They can sleep out, as many do, but if they don't return, they will be deported to their home country when caught. 
Mazik was staying in a residence hotel in Naples. Not a very pleasant place, but serviceable. As for the events leading up to the kidnapping, he himself has no memory of what happened. The interviewer was inclined to believe him because of the trauma of the kidnapping, the drugs, and the lack of oxygen. But Daniela canvassed the hotel, and a fellow refugee said Mazik told him he was planning on taking a bus to meet someone for dinner near D'Abruzzo. It's a small town in the countryside. Sachs said, we should find that guy and talk to him. He might have seen the composer. Maybe tailing Mazik. Rossi said, there is a possibility about that. The postal police have analyzed the data from the phone card found where he was kidnapped. It is surely his, rather than the composer's. He used a prepaid mobile, as all refugees do. Just before he was kidnapped, he made calls to other prepaids. In Naples, in Libya, and to an Italian town in the north, Bolzano, not far from the border. The postal police believe they can correlate the pings. You understand? Yes, Rhyme said, to find out where he was when he called. Precisely. They will let me know soon. Sachs asked, what does he have to say? He remembers very little. He believes he was blindfolded much of the time. He awoke in the reservoir and his kidnapper was gone. Unsmiling Beatrice, as womanly round as a Botticelli model, walked from the laboratory to the situation room. Ecco. She held up a few printouts. Ercole picked up a sharpie and stepped to the board. She shook her head adamantly and took the marker from his hand. She glanced at Rossi and spoke. Ercole frowned while Rossi laughed. He explained, She has said the forestry officer's handwriting is not the best. He will read the results of the scientific police's analysis in English, and she will write it on our chart. He will assist her in translation. As the man read from the sheets, the woman's stubby fingers skittered over the pad on the easel in, yes, it was true, quite elegant handwriting. The Composer Kidnapping, Viale Margherita, 22, Naples. Site, Roman Aqueduct Reservoir. Victim, Ali Mazik. Refugee, temporarily housed at Paradise Hotel, Naples. Minor injuries to neck and throat from strangulation. Minor dehydration disorientation and memory loss from drugs and lack of oxygen. Trace from clothing of victim. Variant of drug, amobarbital. Residue of liquid chloroform. Clay-based dirt, source unknown. Footprints. Victims. Converse cons, size 45, same as at other scenes. Pitcher containing water. No source determined. Nokia phone, prepaid mobile. Sent to postal police for analysis. EID number indicates bought for cash two days ago at tobacco store in Viale Manuele. Phone short-circuited in water spill upon entry to site. SIM card revealed five calls earlier in day from one number prepaid, no longer active. DNA on phone. Sweat, most likely. Matches that of composer. Trace of olanzapine. Antipsychotic drug. Small amount of sodium chloride. Propylene glycol. Mineral oil. Glycerol monosterate polyoxyethylene stearate, cereal alcohol, calcium chloride, potassium chloride, methylparaben, butylparaben. Duct tape, no source determined. Cotton cloth, used as gag, no source determined. Noose, made of two musical instrument strings, 
E strings for double bass instrument, similar to noose from crime scene in New York used on victim Robert Ellis. Bucket, common, no source determined. Lock and hasp, barring front door, common, no source determined. Wooden rod, improvised gallows, common, no source determined. No fingerprints other than victims. Smudge marks suggest latex gloves. Related. Uploaded video on NowChat video posting service, four minutes, three seconds, depicting victim, noose. Music playing, waltz of the flowers from the nutcracker and human gasping, possibly victims. Postal police attempting to trace upload, but uses of proxies and virtual private networks is slowing search. Beatrice then taped up a dozen crime scene photographs of the water reservoir where Mazik had been held, as well as the entryway to the old building, the aqueduct, and the musty brick basement. Ercole stared at the pictures of the reservoir, which seemed to depict a medieval torture chamber. A grim place. Rhyme said nothing to the forestry officer but scanned the chart. Well, I mentioned crazy. I didn't see how right I was. What is that you mean, Captain Rhyme? You see the sodium chloride, propylene glycol, and so on? Yes, what is that? Electroconductive jelly. It's applied to the skin for electroconvulsive shock treatments for psychotics. Rare nowadays. Could the composer be seeing a mental doctor here? Ercole asked. For those treatments? No, no, Rhyme said. The procedure takes time in the hospital. It's probably from the same place where the composer got the antipsychotic drug, a U.S. hospital. He's functioning well enough, so I'd guess he'd had the treatment a few days before the New York attack. And what's amobarbital? Another antipsychotic? Sachs said, I'll check the NYPD database. A moment later, she reported, It's a fast-acting sedative to combat panic attacks. It was developed a hundred years ago in Germany as a truth serum. It didn't work for that, but doctors found it had a side effect of quickly calming agitated or aggressive subjects. Many bipolar and schizophrenic patients, Rhyme knew from past cases, were often racked with anxiety. Another figure stepped slowly into the doorway. It was Dante Spiro, who scanned everyone with an expressionless face. Procuratore, Ercole said. The prosecutor cocked his head and wrote something in his leather-bound book. For some reason, Ercole Benelli witnessed this with concern, Rhyme noted. Spiro slipped the book away and reviewed the evidence chart. He said only, English, ah. Then he turned to Sachs and Rhyme. Now, your involvement in this case is to be limited to these four walls. Are you in agreement, Inspector? A nod toward Rossi. Of course, yes. Mr. Rhyme, you are here by our grace. You have no authority to investigate a crime in this country. Your contributions to analyzing the evidence will be appreciated if they prove helpful, as they have, and I acknowledge that. And any thoughts you might have about the composer's frame of mind will be taken into account, too. But beyond that, no. Am I understood? Perfectly, Rhyme muttered. Now one more thing I wish to say. On a subject that has been raised before, extradition. You have lost jurisdiction over the composer and his crimes in America, while we have gained it. You will wish to try for extradition, but I will fight it most strenuously. He eyed them for a moment. Let me please give you a lesson in the law. Mr. Rhyme and Detective Sachs. 
Imagine a town in Italy called Ciocce del Lupo. The name is a joke, you see? It's not a real place. It means wolf tits. Romulus and Remus, the founding of Rome myth, Rhymes said. His voice was bored because he was bored. He stared at the newsprint pads on the easel. Ercole said, The twins suckling on a wolf. Rhyme corrected absently. The female suckles, the baby sucks. Oh, I didn't... Spiro cut Ercole short with a glare and continued to rhyme. The legal lesson is this. Lawyers from America do not win cases in Choche del Lupo. Lawyers from Choche del Lupo win cases in Choche del Lupo. And you are Americans firmly in the city centre of Choche del Lupo at the moment. You will not win an extradition. So it will be better for you if that thought vanishes from your mind. Grimes said, Maybe we should concentrate on catching him, don't you think? Spiro said nothing, but slowly withdrew his phone and sent a text or email. Rossi stirred a bit, uneasy at the exchange. Ercole said, Procuratore, Inspector, I have a thought and I would like to pursue it. After a moment, Spiro put his phone away and lifted an eyebrow toward the young man. See? We should set up surveillance at the place where we found Mazik, the entrance to the aqueduct. Surveillance? Yes, of course. Ercole was smiling at Spiro's apparent inability to see what was obvious to him. There has been no press announcement. The police have left the area. There is tape on the door, but you must get close to see that. He might return to the scene of the crime, and when he gets within the area, slap! We can arrest him. When I was there, I noted hiding places across the street where one could remain concealed. You don't think that would be a waste of our resources, which we know are more limited than I would hope for? Another grin. Not at all. Waste? How do you see that? Spiro flung his arm in the air. Why do I even bother? Is that what you do in the woods as a forestry officer? Disguise yourself as a stag, a bear, and wait for a poacher. I just was... Then Italian trickled from his mouth. Rhyme glanced at the doorway and noted that another officer stood in the hallway watching the exchange. He was a handsome young man, dressed quite stylishly. He was studying Ercole's blushing face with a neutral expression. I simply thought it made sense, sir. Rhyme decided to end the mystery. He will not be back. No? No, Spiro said. Tell him why, Mr. Rhyme. Because of the water that spilled when you and Sachs opened the door. I do not understand. Do you see what the water drenched? Ercole looked toward the pictures. The phone. The composer set up the table and the items on it very carefully. Anyone opening the door, especially quickly would knock the bottle of water over, shorting out the phone. Ercole closed his eyes briefly. Yes, of course. The composer would call every fifteen minutes or so. We see that from the call log. And as long as the mobile rang, he knew no one was there. When he called and it was dead, he would realize that someone had breached the door, and it was unsafe to return. So simple, yet I missed it. Spiro cast a glance down his nose at Ercole. Then he asked, Where is Mazik now? A protective cell, Rossi said, here. Forestry officer, Spiro said. Yes, sir. 
Make yourself useful and find our Arabic-speaking officer. I am interested in that substance, the electroconductive gel. They had discussed this before Spiro appeared. Allora, Ercole fell silent. What do you wish to say? The officer cleared his throat. Rhyme broke in again. Our supposition was that it was from the composer. He's taking antipsychotic drugs, so we assumed he'd undergone ECS treatment. Spiro replied, That is logical. But it's not impossible that Mazik was being treated in Libya for a condition, and I would like to eliminate that as a possibility. Rhyme nodded, for it was a theory that he had not considered, and it was a valid one. Si, procuratore. And that other substance, uh, amobarbital. Spiro gazed at the chart. Sachs told him it was a sedative the composer took to ward off panic attacks. See if Mazik has ever taken that, too. I will go now, Ercole said. Then go. After he'd left, Rhyme said, Prosecutor Spiro, it's rare that someone knows the raw ingredients of electroconductive gel. Rhyme had concluded that's what the ingredients were before the prosecutor had arrived. Is it? Spiro asked absently. His eyes were on the chart. We learn many things in this curious business of ours, don't we? Stepping outside the situation room, Ercole Benelli nearly ran directly into Silvio da Carlo, Rossi's favorite boy. The stylista, the fashionista of the police of state. Mamma mia, and now I will endure the comments. Will de Carlo snidely remark on my mopping up spilled mineral water too, or just the most recent dressing down by Spiro? More forestry corps comments? Zucchini cop, pig cop. Ercole thought for a moment about walking past the young man, who was again dressed in clothing that Ercole not only couldn't afford, but wouldn't have had the taste to select, even if he'd been given the run of a Ferragamo warehouse. But then he decided, no, no running. As when he was young and boys would torment him about his gangly build and clumsiness at sports, he'd learned that it was best to confront them, even if you ended up with a bloody nose or split lip. He looked De Carlo in the eye. Silvio? Ercole? Your case is going well? But the assistant inspector wasn't interested in small talk. He looked past Ercole and up and down the corridor. His rich brown eyes settled on the forestry officer once more. He said, You have been lucky. Lucky? With Dante Spiro. The offenses you have committed. Offenses? Have not been so serious. He might have cut your legs out from underneath you, stuck you like a pig. Ah, a reference to the forestry corps. De Carlo continued. Yet you received what amounted to a slap with a glove. Ercole said nothing but waited for the insult, the sneer, the condescension, not knowing what form it might take. How would he respond? It hardly mattered. Whatever he said, it would backfire. He would make a buffoon of himself as always with the Silvio the Carlos of the world. But then the officer continued, If you want to survive this experience, if you want to move from forestry into police of state, as I suspect you do, and this might be your only opportunity, you must learn how to work with Dante Spiro. Do you swim, Ercole? I... yes. In the sea? Of course. They were in Naples. Every boy could swim in the sea. 
De Carlo said, So you know riptides. You never fight them because you can't win. You let them take you where they will, and then slowly, gently, you swim diagonally back to shore. Dante Spiro is a riptide. With Spiro you never fight him. That is to say, contradict him. You never question him. You agree. You suggest he is brilliant. If you have an idea that you feel must be pursued and is at odds with him, then you must find a way to achieve your goal obliquely, either in a way that he can't learn about or one that seems, seems, mind you, compatible with his thinking. Do you understand? Ercole did understand the words, but he would need time to translate them to practical effect. This was a very different way of policing than he was used to. For the moment he said, Yes, I do. Good. Fortunately, you're under the wing of a kinder and equally talented man. Massimo Rossi will protect you to the extent he can. He and Spiro are peers and respect each other. But he can't save you if you fling yourself into the lion's mouth, as you seem inclined to do. Thank you for this. Yes. De Carlo turned and started to walk away, then looked back. Your shirt. Ercole looked down at the cream-colored shirt he had pulled on this morning beneath his gray uniform jacket. He hadn't realized the jacket was unzipped. Armani? Or one of his protégés, perhaps? De Carlo asked. I dressed quickly. I don't know the label, I'm afraid. Ah, well. It is quite fine. Ercole could tell that these words were not ironic, and that De Carlo truly admired the shirt. He offered his thanks. Pointedly, he did not add that the shirt had been stitched together not in Milan, but in a Vietnamese factory, and was sold not in a boutique in the chic Vomero district of Naples, but from a cart on the rough and rugged avenue known as the Spaccanapoli by an Albanian vendor. The negotiated price was four euros. They shook hands, and the assistant inspector wandered off, pulling an iPhone in a stylish case from a stylish back pocket. Chapter 21 Not in Kansas anymore. Walking down the residential portion of this Neapolitan street, dinner time and therefore not so crowded, Gary Soames thought of this cliched line from The Wizard of Oz, and then he whispered it aloud, glancing at a young brunette, long, long hair, long legs, conversing on a cell phone passing by. It was a certain type of look, and she returned it in a certain way, eyes not exactly lingering, but remaining upon his sculpted Midwest American face a fraction of a second longer than a phone talker would do otherwise. Then the woman, the epitome of southern Italian Elan, and her swaying, sexy stride, were gone. Damn. Nice. Gary continued on. His eyes then slipped to two more young women, chatting, dressed as sharply and as tactically as any hot girl on the Upper East Side in Manhattan. Unlike woman one a moment ago, they both ignored him, but Gary didn't care. He was in a very good mood. And what 23-year-old wouldn't be, having exchanged his home state of Missouri, sorta kinda like Kansas, for Italy, Oz, without the flying monkeys? The athletic young man, built like a running back, hitched his heavy backpack higher on his shoulder and turned the corner that would take him to his apartment on Corso Umberto I. His head hurt slightly. A bit too much vermentino, and heaven help him, 
cheap grappa at his early supper a half hour ago. But he'd earned it, finishing his class assignments early in the afternoon and then wandering the streets, practicing his Italian. Slowly he was learning the language, which had at first seemed overwhelming, largely because of the concept of gender. Carpets were boys, tables were girls. And accents. Just the other day he'd raised eyebrows and earned laughs when at a restaurant he'd ordered penises with tomato sauce. The word for male genitalia was dangerously close to penne, the pasta, and to the word for bread, too. Little by little, though, he was learning the language, learning the culture. Poco a poco. Feeling good, yes. Though he would have to rein in the late-night parties. Too much drinking. Too many women. Well, no, that was an oxymoron. One could not have too many women. But one could have too many possessive and temperamental and needy women. The kind that he naturally ended up bedding all too often. Naples was far safer than parts of his hometown in St. Louis, but instinct told him he probably shouldn't sleep over in strangers' apartments quite so much, waking to the girl, bleary-eyed, staring at him uncertainly, muttering things, then asking him to leave. Just control it, he told himself, thinking specifically of Valentina a few weeks ago. What was her last name? Yes, Morelli. Valentina Morelli. Ah, such beautiful, sexy brown eyes, which had turned far less beautiful and far more chilling when he'd balked at what he'd apparently suggested as they lay in bed. It seemed he'd told her, thank you, Mr. Brunello or Barolo, that she could come to the United States with him, and they could see San Diego together, or San Diego, or somewhere. She'd be coming a raging she-wolf and flung a bottle, the expensive Super Tuscan, but empty, thank God, into his bathroom mirror, shattering both. She'd muttered words to him in Italian. It seemed like a curse. So, just be more careful. Spend the year in Europe, kiddo, his father had told him upon his departure from Lambert Field. Enjoy! Graduate at the bottom of your class. Experience life. The tall man, an older version of Gary, with silver in his blonde hair, had then lowered his voice. But you do a single milligram of coke or pot, and you're on your own. You end up in a Naples jail. All you'll get from us is postcards, and probably not even that. And Gary could truthfully tell his father that he'd never tried any coke and he'd never tried any pot. There was plenty else to amuse him. Like Valentina. San Diego, really? He'd use that as a come-on line? Or Ariella? Or Tony? Then he thought of Frida, the Dutch girl he'd met at Natalia's party on Tuesday. Yes, picturing them being on the roof, her beautiful hair dipping onto his shoulder, her firm breast against his arm, her damp lips against his. You are, I am saying, a pretty boy, isn't it? You are the football player? Your football or mine? Which broke her up. Foot. Ball. Her mouth on his again. Above them spanned the Neapolitan evening, milky with a million stars. He and this beautiful Dutch girl, blonde and tasting of mint, alone in a deserted alcove of the roof, her eyelids closing, and Gary looking down at her thinking, sorry, 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 it's out of my hands, I can't control it.
Now he shuddered and closed his eyes and didn't want to think about Frida again. Gary's mood grew dark, and he decided that hell, he'd open up a new grappa when he got home. Frida. Shit. Approaching the doorway of the old flat. It was a shabby two-story place on a quiet stretch of road. The building had probably been a single family at one point, but then converted into a two-unit apartment. He lived in the basement. He paused and found his key. Then Gary was startled by two people walking up to him. He was cautious. He'd been mugged once already. An ambiguous threat. Two skinny but mean-eyed men had asked to borrow money. He'd given it up along with his watch, which they hadn't asked for but had happily taken. But then he saw that the two men were police officers, middle-aged, stocky, both of them, a man and woman, in the blue uniforms of the police of state. Still, of course, his guard was up. Yes? Speaking good English, the woman asked, You are Gary Soames? I am. May I see your passport? In Italy, everyone was required to carry and produce upon demand a passport or identity card. It rankled the civil libertarian within him, but he complied without protest. She read it and slipped it into her own pocket. Hey! You were at a party two days ago, the 22nd, in the flat of Natalia Garelli? His memories of just a few moments ago. I, well, yes, I was. You were there all night? What's all night? When were you there? I don't know, from maybe ten until three or so? What's this all about? Mr. Soames, the man said his accent thicker than his partner's. We are putting you under arrest for certain events that occurred at that party. I would like you to present your hands. My... Steel cuffs appeared. He hesitated. The male comp. Please, sir, I would recommend you do this. The woman lifted the backpack off his shoulder and began to look through it. You can't do that! She ignored him and continued to rummage. The man cuffed him. The woman completed the search of his bag and said nothing. The man searched his pockets, taking his wallet and leaving everything else. He found three unopened condoms and held them up. The two officers shared a look. Everything the man took he placed in an evidence bag. Each taking an arm, they led him up the street to an unmarked car. What's this all about? He repeated stridently. They were silent. I haven't done anything! He switched to Italian and said in a desperate voice, Non ho fatto niente di sbagliato. Still no response. He snapped. Qual è il crimine? The charge is battery and rape. It is my duty to inform you that, as you are now under arrest, you have the right to an attorney and an interpreter. Signor, please, get into the car. Chapter 22 Rhyme and Sachs examined the evidence chart that Beatrice and Ercole had assembled. Rossi and Spiro stood behind them, also scanning, scanning, scanning. Beatrice had done a solid job isolating and identifying the materials. Do you have a geological database? Rhyme asked Rossi. Where we can narrow the source of that clay-based soil? Rossi summoned the woman from the crime lab. When posed the question, Beatrice answered. The inspector's translation. She has compared the soil with a number of samples, but it is common with those found in hundreds of areas and can't be narrowed down more. Rhyme asked, Can we canvas stores that would sell duct tape? 
wooden rods, and buckets. Rossi and Spiro regarded each other with amusement. It was for Rossi to say, that is beyond our resources. Well, at least can we see if the tobacco store where he bought the phone has a video camera? The inspector said, Daniela and Giacomo have that assignment, yes. Ercole Benelli appeared in the doorway and entered cautiously, almost as if worried he'd be physically assaulted by Dante Spiro. Sir, no, Ali Mazik has not had electroconvulsive treatment. He does not know what that is. And he has taken no medication. Well, I am not accurate. He takes Tylenol for his pains. That's not relevant, forestry officer. No, of course, procuratore. Spiro said, Electroconvulsive antipsychotic drugs, anti-anxiety drugs. So the composer was surely a patient at some mental facility recently. Have you searched mental hospitals? Rhyme wondered if the question was calculated to be a barb to counter what he might perceive as Rhyme's criticism of the Italian's inability to search for the sources for the wooden rod, tape, and bucket, which it was not. There are too many hospitals and doctors to check, and the theft of a small amount of the sedative wouldn't be reported in the national database. Our NCIC shows no similar crimes ever. Beyond our resources. Spiro regarded the evidence chart. And no clue as to where he's holed up. Surprised at the old-time American expression. Hold up? Ercole asked tentatively. Where he's staying. Where he took the victim right after the kidnapping. It wasn't there at the aqueduct? No, Spiro said, and offered nothing more. Rhyme explained, he hadn't peed or defecated. He knew this because either Sachs or the medical team would have observed and reported if he'd done so. The composer has a base of operation in or near Naples. He videoed Mazik in the aqueduct reservoir room, but he assembled and uploaded the video from somewhere else. Maybe something there will tell us where. Maybe not. A nod toward the chart. Rossi answered his mobile and had a conversation. After he disconnected, he said, that was my colleague with the postal police. They have completed the analysis of Mazik's phone card. They have significantly narrowed the area where he made calls within the hour before he was kidnapped at the bus stop. The center on a cellular phone tower about ten kilometers northwest of the town of D'Abruzzo. Spiro said to Rossi, I know nothing about the area. Why would the composer be hunting that far from downtown? Allora, can your officers get out there, Massimo? Tomorrow? Possibly. Not, however, until later. Daniele and Giacomo will be canvassing here. Why don't we send Ercole? Him? Spiro looked his way. Have you ever canvassed before? I've interviewed suspects and witnesses. Many times. Rhyme wondered if the prosecutor would make some cruel comment about canvassing wildlife. But the man merely shrugged. Yes, all right. I will do it, see. He paused glancing to the room where Mazik had been interviewed. Can you assign an Arabic speaker to come with me? Perhaps the officer who spoke with him earlier? Rossi asked. Arabic? Why? Because of what you said, procuratore. Me? Yes, just now. Why would he go all that distance if there was not a Muslim community there? He doesn't speak Italian. I would guess he met with an Arabic speaker. Spiro considered this. Perhaps... But Rossi said, our translators Marco and Federica are busy solidly, to rhyme.
Our greatest lack, one of our greatest lacks, is Arabic interpreters, given the refugee flood. The young officer frowned. To Sachs, he said, You were speaking Arabic. Me? Oh, I... You are quite proficient, Ercole said quickly. Then to Rossi. She was speaking to Mazik. To Sachs, he said, Perhaps you could assist. Then he grew stern. Only for that purpose. You translate for me and say nothing else. Sachs blinked. Rhyme reflected that there was something faintly comical about the gentle young man trying to sound like a prickly lecturing father. Ercole said to the prosecutor, I recall what you said, procuratore. She will translate only, and if anyone were to ask, that is what I will tell them. But I think it is important, if you agree, to find this dinner companion of Mazik, or find evidence the composer might have left, or witnesses who saw him. Perhaps this will lead to establishing the pattern you are speaking of. But under no circumstances will she utter a word to the press. Correct. Spiro looked from Ercole to Sachs. He said, On that condition, complete silence other than to interpret the forestry officer's words. If there is no need, you will remain in the car. Fine. Spiro walked to the doorway. Then he paused and turned back to Sachs. Hal tata hadath ale Arabia? She eyed him evenly. Nemfialan. Spiro met her gaze for a moment, then pulled a lighter from his pocket and, clutching it and his cheroot together, continued into the corridor. Rhyme suspected that with those two exchanges the prosecutor had used up a good portion of his entire Arabic vocabulary. He knew Saxes numbered about two dozen words. He swiveled to see Tom standing in the doorway. And we're going to the hotel, the aide said firmly. I need, you need rest. There are a dozen unanswered questions. I'll unplug the controller and push you to the van. The chair weighed close to a hundred pounds, but Rhyme knew Tom was fully capable of doing just what he'd threatened. A grimace. Fine, fine, fine. He turned the chair and headed out into the hallway, leaving it to Sachs to say goodnight for both of them. Chapter 23 close to 11 p.m. Stefan was driving outside Naples, edgy, anxious. He wanted to start the next composition. He needed to start the next composition. Wiping sweat, wiping, stuffing the tissues into his pocket, so very careful to avoid that DNA crap. He was aware of noises, of course, always, but tonight they didn't calm him or dull the anxiety. The car's hum, the shush of rubber on asphalt, the two dozen tones from one dozen insects. An owl. No, two. An airplane overhead, imposing its growl over everything else. Evenings are best for listening. The cool, damp air lifts sounds from ground and trees, sounds you'd never otherwise hear, and carries them to you like the wise men's gifts. Stefan was careful to drive the speed limit. He had no license, and the vehicle was stolen but there were no daughters or sons of Greek gods close on his tail. A police-of-state car passed him. A carabinieri car passed him. Neither driver paid him or anyone else on the crowded road any mind. The meds humming through his system and his muse, Euterpe, hovering in his heart helped, but still he remained unsteady. Shaky hand, sweaty skin. As for his most recent participant in the composer's art, Ali Mazik, 
he thought nothing at all. The skinny little creature no longer existed to Stefan. He'd played his part in Stefan's journey to harmony, and a fine contribution he had been. He hummed a bit of the waltz of the flowers. Gasp to three, gasp to three. The car rose to the crest of a hill, and he pulled onto the weedy shoulder and stopped. He gazed over the fields of Capodichino. This district, now a suburb of Naples, had been the site of a heroic battle. The Neapolitans against the Nazi occupiers on the third day of the famed and successful uprising known as the Four Days of Naples in 1943. These fields were home to Naples Airport and a number of businesses, small factories and warehouses, modest residences, too. And here he would find something else, something that insistently drew the gaze of any passerby. The Capodichino Reception Center, one of the largest refugee camps in Italy. It was many acres in size and filled with orderly rows of blue plasticized tents, Ministero dell'Interno, emblazoned in stark white letters on the roofs. The camp was surrounded by an eight-foot fence topped with barbed wire, though it was flimsy and little patrolled, Stefan noted. Even now, so late, the place was bustling. Many, many people milled about, or sat, or squatted. He had heard that all the camps in Italy were vastly overcrowded, security inadequate. All of which was great for Stefan, of course. A chaotic hunting ground is a good hunting ground. Having verified that there were a few guards in vehicles or on foot patrolling the roads surrounding the camp, he now pulled back onto the road and maneuvered his old Mercedes forward. He parked not far away from the main entrance, climbed out. He walked closer, mixing with a cluster of lethargic reporters, probably backgrounding human interest pieces. Protesters, too. Most placards he didn't understand, but several were in English. Go back home. Scanning the camp. It was even more crowded than when he'd first been here just recently. But otherwise, little had changed. Men in takia or kufi skullcaps. Nearly all the women were in hijabs or wearing other head coverings. A few of the arrivals had suitcases, but most carried cloth or plastic bags filled with their only remaining possessions in the world. Some clutched the thick quilted blankets they would have been given by the Italian Navy after their human smugglers' boats had been interdicted, or after they'd been fished from the Mediterranean. A few still held orange life vests, also given out by the military and NGOs, and occasionally the smugglers themselves, at least those worried that drowned customers were bad for business. Many of the refugees were families. The second most populous group seemed to be single men. There were hundreds upon hundreds of children, some playing, cheerful, most sullen, bewildered, and exhausted. The soldiers and police officers were plentiful, and given the many different uniforms, must have come from a number of branches of government. They seemed weary and stern, but appeared to treat the refugees well. None of them paid the least attention to Stefan, just like the other day, when he'd been here earlier. Chaos. Hunting ground. Something caught his eye. Stefan could see a man slipping out at the far end of the fence through a slit cut vertically in the link. Was he escaping? But watching, he noticed the man stroll nonchalantly up to one of a dozen vendors ringing the camp, selling food, clothing, and personal items. He made a purchase, and then returned. Yes, the camp security was porous. Stefan bought food from one of these stands, a Middle Eastern dish. It was tasty, 
but he had little appetite. He simply wanted some calories for the energy. He ate as he walked up and down the roadway along the camp. He then returned to the main gate. Soon a large panel truck arrived, its precious cargo, yet more refugees, with varying degrees of dark skin and wearing garb typical of North Africa, he supposed. Some, too, he guessed, would be from Syria, though the journey over so many kilometers of rough sea to the western shore of Italy seemed unimaginable. He heard in his mind's ear the creak of boards of the frail ships, the thump of the zodiac boat pontoons, the unsteady stutter of struggling motors, the cries of babies, the slap of waves, the call of birds, the hiss and flutter of wind. Eyes closed, shivering as he was momentarily overwhelmed by hearing sounds he could not hear. He calmed and wiped the sweat, and putting away the tissue. See, he thought to her, I'm being careful. Always for his muse. The thirty-odd refugees disembarked from the newly arrived truck and stood near the entrance to the camp under the eyes of two guards. No machine guns, just white leather holsters containing pistols on lanyards. They were directing the arrivees into a processing station, a long, low table where four aid workers sat over clipboards and laptops. Stefan moved closer yet. It was so crowded that no one paid him any mind. He was near to a couple who stood sullen and exhausted-looking, nearly as tired as the two-year-old child asleep in the mother's arms. They stepped to the table, and the husband, they wore wedding rings, said, Khaled Jabril, a nod to his wife, Fatima. Then he brushed the child's hair. Muna. I'm Ranyatasso, said the woman they stood before. Heads nodded, but no hands were shaken. Khaled was dressed western, jeans and a counterfeit Hugo Boss t-shirt. Fatima was scarved and wore a long-sleeved tunic, but was also in jeans. They both had running shoes. The little girl was in a costume, yellow, some Disney character. The woman reviewing their passports, Ranya, had dark red hair, done in a double braid down to the small of her back. The radio on her hip and badge dangling from her neck meant she was an employee of the organization. After some minutes of watching her, Stefan decided she was very senior, perhaps the director of the camp. She was attractive. Her nose was Romanesque, and her skin an olive shade that suggested her Italian ancestry was mixed with Greek, or perhaps Tunisian. The refugees answered questions. And oh my, Stefan did not like Fatima's voice one bit. Vocal fry, the tone was called, a condition afflicting more women than men, he believed, a rasping, growling quality to the voice. She spoke more words. Oh, he didn't like that sound at all. Ranya typed some data into the computer. She wrote some information, in Arabic, on a three-by-five card and handed it to Fatima, who then asked some questions. She was frowning. It was almost as if she, here by the grace of the country, were interviewing Ranya about her intentions and worth. The director answered patiently. Fatima began to speak again, but her husband Khaled spoke softly to her. He had quite the pleasant baritone. Fatima fell silent and nodded. She said something else, which Stefan took to be words of apology. Then the exchange was over, and clutching a backpack, two large plastic bags and their child, the couple vanished into the camp, directed down a long row to the back of the place. Suddenly and surprisingly, music swelled. 
Middle Eastern music. The sound came from the front of one of the tents where a clutch of young men had set up a CD player. The music of the Arab world was curious. Not thematic, not narrative. It lacked the familiar timings and progressions of the West. This was like a tone poem, repetitious, but in its own way pleasing. Seductive, almost sensual. If Ali Mazik's gasps provided the beat for the waltz, this music would be the buzz and hum of the body. In any event, the music calmed him and stubbed out a budding black scream. The flow of sweat seemed to lessen. Fatima paused in mid-step and aimed her beautiful but witchy face toward the cluster of young men. She frowned and spoke to them in her sizzling voice. Looking awkward, one shut the radio off. So not only did she cackle when she spoke, but she disliked music. You terpy would not like her. And it was never wise to incur the anger of a muse. You thought they were charming. You thought they were delicate creatures who lived quietly in the sequestered world of art and culture, lounging about on Olympus. But they were, of course, the daughters of Olympus's most powerful and ruthless god. Friday, September 24th. 4. The Land of No Hope. Chapter 24. Amelia Sachs was downstairs in the lobby of the hotel where they were staying, the Grand Hotel di Napoli. Quite the place. The design was, she believed, it was called Rococo. Gold and red wallpaper, flecked velvet, elaborate armoires, glass-fronted, filled with ceramics and silver and gold and ivory artifacts like inkwells, fans, and key fobs. On the walls were paintings of Vesuvius, some depicting eruptions and some not. The artist might have applied brush to canvas on this very spot. Looking east and south, one could see the sullen, dusky-brown pyramid. It seemed gentle, not the least imposing or ominous. But then, Sachs reflected, wasn't that the case with many killers? Also on the walls of the Grand Hotel were photos of the famous, presumably guests or diners, Frank Sinatra and Dean Martin, Faye Dunaway, Jimmy Carter, Sophia Loren, Marcello Mastroianni, Harrison Ford, Madonna, Johnny Depp, and dozens of others, actors, musicians, and politicians. Sachs recognized perhaps half of them. Breakfast, signorina? The clerk behind the desk was smiling. No, grazie. She was still on U.S. time, which meant her body was clocking in about 2 a.m. Besides, she'd stuck her head into the breakfast room to get a glass of orange juice and been overwhelmed by the spread. There was enough food for an entire day's calories. She wouldn't know where to begin. At exactly nine, Ercole Benelli pulled up in front of the hotel. Via Parthenope was largely pedestrian, but no one stopped the lanky man, dressed in his gray uniform, even if his vehicle was the well-worn baby blue Megan, missing any insignia except for a bumper sticker with a silhouette of a bird on it. Curious. She stepped outside into the heat and was rewarded with a spectacular view of the bay and directly in front of the hotel, a castle, no less. Ercole started to get out, keys in hand, but she waved him back into the driver's seat and a look of relief spread over his face. No need for Formula One driving today. She was amused to see a tube of Dramamine sitting in the cup holder. It had not been there yesterday. Sachs took off her black jacket, revealing a beige blouse, tucked into black jeans, 
and dropped the beretta into her shoulder bag, which she set on the floor. They belted in. Ercole signaled, though his was the only car on the road, and steered into the crowded, chaotic streets of Naples. The hotel, she is nice? Yes, very. It is quite famous. You saw the people who have stayed there? Yes, it's a landmark, I assume. Nineteenth century? Oh, no, no. There are certainly old buildings here, as you and I know from the ruins where Ali Mazik was held. But many of the wood and stone structures on the surface were destroyed. The war? Yes, yes. Naples was the most bombed Italian city in World War II, maybe in all of Europe. I do not know that. More than two hundred airstrikes. You understand one thing I am worried about. You know I do not expect you to be my translator. That was a bit odd. Yes, yes, I know the area well. I know the countryside outside of Naples like my hands back. And I know there are no Arab-speaking communities there. But you see, I think this is an important possibility of a lead. Lincoln and I do too. But I am not up to the task. I don't know the questions to ask and the places to look. But you do. This is your specialty. And so I needed you. You played Spiro. Played? Tricked. His long face tightened. I suppose I did. Someone, another officer, told me Spiro needs to be flattered and his opinions, however wrong, must be respected. That is what I did, or I tried to do. I am not used to such games. It worked out. Thank you. Yes. Just as well. I only know a few Arabic phrases, like the one I answered Dante with. And then, can I see some ID? And... Drop the weapon, hands in the air. Let us hope we don't need the last one of those. They drove for ten minutes in silence. The landscape grew from densely urban to a mix of factories and warehouses and residences, then finally to farmland and small villages dusty and dull in the hazy autumn sun. Ercole piloted the car with great care. Sachs was making every effort to avoid even the appearance of impatience. The Megan hovered just under the limit of ninety kilometers per hour, about sixty miles per hour. They were regularly being passed by cars, and even trucks, going much faster. One driver, in a Mini Cooper, seemed to be going twice their speed. They passed a sprawling farm, which for some reason took Ercole's attention. Ah, look there. I will have to come back to that place. She glanced to the left, where he was gesturing with both hands. She'd noted that this seemed to be an Italian habit. However fast the ride, however congested the roads, drivers seemed unable to grip the wheel with both hands, sometimes not even with one when having a conversation. Sachs studied the farm. Pigs, she noted, were the most populous animals in the spread he was indicating, a rambling two acres of low buildings and a lot of mud. A powerful, disgusting smell swept into the car. She noted Ercole was genuinely troubled. Part of my job is to monitor the condition of farm animals, and from a rapid glance it appears to me that those swine are kept in poor quarters. To Sachs they were pigs in mud. The farmer will have to improve their situation, proper drainage and sewage, healthy for the people, of course, and better for the animals. They have souls, too. I firmly believe this. They drove through the town of D'Abruzzo. Ercole explained that this was not to be confused with Abruzzo, a region of Italy east of Rome. 
She wasn't sure why he thought she'd make the mistake, but thanked him anyway. They then continued into the rolling farmland and fallow ground where the postal police had reported that Ali Mazik's phone had been used. Sachs had a map, on which was a large circled area encompassing six small towns or clusters of stores, cafes, restaurants, and bars where Mazik and his colleague might have met. She held it up for him. He nodded and pointed out one. We're closest to there in twenty minutes. They drove along the two-lane road. Hercules spoke about many topics that came to mind. His pigeons, which he kept for no reason other than that he liked the cooing sound they made and the thrill of racing them. Ah, the bumper sticker now made sense. His modest apartment in a pleasant part of Naples, his family, two siblings, older brother and younger, both of whom were married, and his nephews in particular. He talked reverently about his mother and father. They'd both passed away. Allora, may I ask, you and Capitano Rhyme, you will be married soon? Yes. That is nice. When, do you think? It was going to be within the next couple of weeks, until the composer. That delayed things. Sachs told Ercole that Rhyme had been talking about Greenland for their honeymoon. That is true? Odd. I have seen pictures of the place. It is somewhat barren. I would recommend Italy. We have Cinque Terre, Positano, not so very far from here. Florence, Piemonte, Lago di Como. Courmayeur is where I would be married. It is where Monte Bianco is located, near the border, north. Ah, so beautiful. Are you seeing anyone? She had observed the admiring looks he'd shot toward Daniela Canton, and she wondered if they'd known each other before the composer case. She seemed smart, if a bit serious. She certainly was gorgeous. No, no, not at the moment. It is one regret, that my mother did not see me married. You're young. He shrugged. I have other interests at the moment. Hercule then launched into a discussion of his career and his desire to get into the police of state, or even better, the Carabinieri. She asked the difference, and it seemed the latter was a military police organization, though it had jurisdiction over civil crimes as well. Then there was the financial police, which covered crimes involving immigration as well as financial irregularities. This didn't appeal to him. He wanted to be a street cop, an investigator. Like you, he said, blushing and smiling. It was clear that he saw the composer case as an entry into that world. He asked her, too, about policing in New York City, and she told him about her career, from fashion model to NYPD, and about her father, a beat patrol officer all his life. Ah, like father, like daughter, Hercules' eyes shone. Yes. Soon they came to the first village on the list and began canvassing. It was a slow process. They would go into a restaurant or bar, approach the server or owner, and Ercole would flash a picture of Mazik and ask if they had seen him on Wednesday night. The first time this happened, a lengthy and intense conversation ensued. Sachs took this as a good sign, thinking that the person he was speaking to had provided a lead. As they returned to the car, she asked, So he saw Mazik? Who? The waiter? No, no, no. What were you talking about? The government is desiring to build a new road nearby, and that will improve business. He was saying that sales have been down lately. Even with the depressed price of gasoline, people don't seem to be taking trips out into the countryside, because the old road can get washed out, even in a small rainstorm, and Hercule, 
We really should move along. He closed his eyes briefly and nodded. Oh, yes, of course. Then he smiled. In Italy, we enjoy our conversations. Over the next two hours, they hit eighteen establishments. The results were negative. Just after noon, they finished interviewing people in one small town and marked it off the list. Ercole looked at his watch. I would say we will have lunch. She looked around the small intersection. I could use a sandwich, sure. Un panino, sì, possibly. Where can we get one to go? Coffee, too. To go? To take with us. He seemed confused. We, well, we do not do that in Italy. Not in Campania, at least. No, nowhere that I know of in Italy. We will sit down. It won't take long. He nodded to a restaurant whose owner they had just interviewed. That is good. Looks fine to me. They sat outside at a table covered by a vinyl sheet that depicted miniature Eiffel Towers, though French food did not appear on the menu. We should start with mozzarella. That's what Naples is known for. Pizza, too. We invented it. Whatever they say in Brooklyn. She blinked. I'm sorry? An article I read. A restaurant in Brooklyn, in New York, claimed to have created pizza. Where I live. No. He was delighted to learn this. Well, I bring no offense. None taken. He ordered for them. Yes, fresh mozzarella to start, and then pasta with ragu. He had a glass of red wine, and she got an Americano coffee, which the waitress thought curious. Apparently it was a beverage intended for after the meal. Before the cheese, though, an antipasto plate, which they hadn't ordered, appeared, meats sliced microscopically thin and sausages, bread, too, and the drinks. She ate a bite of the meat, then more, salty and explosive with flavor. A moment later the mozzarella cheese came, not slices, but a ball the size of a navel orange, one for each of them. She stared. You eat it all? Ercole, already halfway through his, laughed at the nonsensical question. She ate some. It was the best she'd ever had, and she said so, and then pushed the plate away. You don't care for it, after all? Ercole, it's too much. I usually have coffee and a half bagel for lunch. To go, he shook his head, winking. That is unhealthy for you. His eyes glowed. Ah, here, they passed them. Two plates arrived. This is Ziti, which we're famous for in Campania. It is made from our hard flour, but the very finely milled variety, semolina rimacinata, topped with local ragu. The pasta is broken by hand before cooking. The gnocchi here would be good, too. It's how we get around our Campanian disdain for potatoes. But that's a heavy dish for lunch. You must cook, Sack said. Me? He seemed amused. No, no, no. But everyone in Campania knows food. You just... you just do. The sauce was rich and dense and dressed with just a bit of meat cooked down to tenderness. And there wasn't too much. It didn't overwhelm the pasta, which had a richness and flavor of its own. They ate in silence for a few moments. Sachs asked, What else do you do in... What's your organization called? In English you would say, Corps of Forestry of the State. CFS. We do many things. There are thousands of us officers. Fight forest fires, though I myself do not do that. We have a large fleet of aircraft. 
helicopters too, for rescues of climbers and skiers, agricultural product regulation. Italy takes its food and wine very seriously. You know truffles? The chocolates, sure. A pause as he processed her response. Ah, no, no, no. Truffles, fungi, mushrooms. Oh, right, the ones pigs hunt for. Dogs are better. There's a special breed that's used. They are very expensive and prized for their fine noses. I've run several cases of Lagotti Romagnolo kidnappings by truffle hunters. Must be tough. I mean, without a paw print database. He laughed. They say humor does not cross borders, but that is quite funny. And as a serious matter, it's a shame there is no such thing. Some owners put chips in their dogs, microchips, though I've heard that it's not always safe. He proceeded to explain about how white truffles from the north of Italy and black from central and south were extremely valuable, though the former more so. A single truffle could be worth a thousand euros. He continued to tell her a story about his search for a local truffle counterfeiter, passing off Chinese varieties for Italian. A travesty! The composer case had derailed his hunt. A grimace. The furfante. The villain escaped. Six months of work gone. He scowled and finished his wine in a single gulp. He received a text, read it, then replied. Sachs lifted an eyebrow. Ah, not about the case. My friend, the pigeons I mentioned, he and I raced them together. There is a race soon. Do you know anything about birds, Detective Sachs? Amelia. The only ones she had experience with were the generations of peregrine falcons that had nested outside Lincoln Rhyme Central Park West townhouse. They were beautiful, striking, and perhaps the most efficient and ruthless predator pound for pound in the world. And their favorite meal was the fat, oblivious pigeons of New York City. She said, No, Ercole, not a thing. I have racing homers. Mine compete at fifty to a hundred kilometers. A nod to the phone. My friend and I have a team. It can be quite exciting. Very competitive. Some people complain that the pigeons are at risk. There are hawks, bad weather, man-made obstacles. But I would rather be a pigeon on a mission than one that sits all day on a statue of Garibaldi. She chuckled. That'd be my choice, too. Pigeon on a mission. They'd taken a long enough break. Sachs called for the check. He absolutely refused to let her pay. They resumed their own mission. And, curiously, the delay for lunch, the delicious lunch, paid off. At the next town, they stopped at a restaurant in which the server had just come on duty. Had they not taken their meal in the previous town, they would have missed her. The waitress in Ristorante San Giancarlo was a slim blonde with her grandmother's flip hairstyle and very up-to-date tats. She looked at the picture Sachs proffered of Ali Mazik, and she nodded. Ercole translated. The man in the picture was dining with a man who was Italian, though not from Campania, she believes. She herself is Serbian, so she couldn't place the accent, but it was not like the people in this region talk. Did she know him? Had she seen him before? No, she said to Sachs and spoke some more in Italian. Ercole explained, telling Sachs that Mazik seemed uncomfortable the whole meal, looking around. The men spoke English, but would fall silent when she approached. Mazik's companion, she didn't think they were friends, was not so very nice. The big man with a dark complexion and thick dark hair complained that his soup was cold, 
which it was not, and said the bill was wrong, which it was not. His dark suit was dusty, and he smoked foul cigarettes, not caring who was offended. They paid with a credit card? Sachs asked, hoping. No, the waitress responded. Euros, and they gave no tip, of course. A sour pout. Sachs asked how they had arrived, but the server wasn't sure. They had just walked in from up the road. Sachs inquired. Did anyone seem to be interested in him? Anyone in a black car? She understood the English. Da! I mean to say, yes! Her eyes widened. Fascinated that you would be speaking of that. She returned to Italian. Ercole said, Halfway through the meal, a large black or dark blue car drove by and slowed suddenly, as if the driver took an interest in the restaurant. She was thinking that she might be having rich tourists as customers. But no, he drove on. The driver might have seen them? Yes, the waitress said. Possible. The two men I am being talking about, they were outside. That tavola, table, there. Sachs looked up and down the quiet street. On the other side of the road was a tree-filled lot, and behind that, farmland. You said they fell silent, but did you hear them say anything? After a conversation with the waitress, Ercole explained, She did hear them mention Trenitalia, the national train service. She believed the Italian said, You, meaning Mazik would have a six-hour trip, and Mazik seemed discouraged by that. Six hours, that means he would be going north, he smiled. We are not such a big country. They could almost be at the northern border in that time. The woman had nothing more to add and seemed disappointed that they didn't want a second lunch. The tortellini was the best in southern Italy, she promised. So the composer was cruising the streets looking for a likely target, an immigrant, possibly, and he had seen Mazik. What then? She scanned the hazy street, dead quiet, and then gestured for Ercole to follow her. They crossed the road and ducked through the stand of trees and bushes bordering the empty lot opposite the restaurant. She pointed. They were looking at the tire treads of a car with a large wheelbase. The markings seemed similar to those of the Michelins from the bus stop kidnapping. The vehicle had pulled into the back of the vacant lot and parked. The ground here was sparse grass and dank earth, and it was easy to see where the driver had gotten out and walked to the passenger's side, which faced the line of trees and bushes, and beyond, the very table where Mazik and his unpleasant companion had sat. It appeared that the composer had opened the passenger's door and sat, facing outward toward the diners, the door open. He liked the looks of his prey, Ercole said. He sat here and spied on Mazik. So it seems, she said, walking up to the trees through which she could see the Tortellini restaurant clearly. She pulled on latex gloves and told Ercole to do the same, which he did. She handed him rubber bands, but he shook his head and produced a handful from his pocket. She smiled at his foresight. Take pictures of the impressions, shoes and tread marks. He did so, shooting from a number of different angles. Beatrice Renza, is she good? As a forensic officer? I never met her until the other day. Again, I am new to the police of state, but Beatrice seems good, yes. Though she is aloof, and... Is it a word? Attitudinal? Yep. Not like Daniela, Ercole said wistfully. You think photos will be enough for her to type the treadmarks, or should we call a forensic team in? 
I think the photos will do for her. She will browbeat them into submission. Sachs laughed. And scoop up samples of the dirt where he stood and sat. Yes, I will. She handed him some empty bags. But he had already produced some of his own from his uniformed pocket. She squinted back toward the restaurant. And something else? What, detective? Amelia. She said, You're a forestry officer. Do you by any chance have a saw in the trunk of your car? As a matter of fact, I have three. Chapter 25 Cos'è quello? Rhyme could translate that one for himself. In fact, he was wondering the same thing. Ercole, who was carting in the presumably item of evidence, answered, It's St. John's bread. You might know it as a carob tree, Ceratonia siliqua. The object was foliage, about five feet tall, four branches joined to a single trunk. It had been sawn off at the base. In gloved hands, Ercole also carried a large plastic bag containing smaller bags, filled with dirt and grass. They were in the situation room once more. Sachs accompanied Ercole. Massimo Rossi and Ernest, unsmiling forensic officer Beatrice Renza were present too. Though it was an odd piece of evidence, the woman regarded the large foliage with the same clinical detachment as she might a bullet casing or latent friction ridge lift. Rhyme noted that Sachs's hands were glove-free, in keeping with her limited role as translator, or the appearance of her limited role. Ercole continued enthusiastically, It is quite an interesting plant. Of course, the beans are used to make carob powder, like chocolate. The name carob I find most interesting is the source for the word carrot, as per the measuring unit for diamonds. Forestry officer, I do not care about its esteemed place in the pantheon of plants, Spiro growled. Could you be more responsive to my question? He slipped into his pocket the slim book he'd been jotting notes in, the book he was never without. Ercole regarded the book with concern once again, it seemed, and answered quickly. I found the place where the composer was spying on Ali Mazik and the man he had dinner with. You found him? This Arabic speaker? Spiro asked. No, but I learned he's Italian, though most likely not Campanian, Ercole continued with a glance toward Beatrice. The pictures I uploaded? The forensic officer answered, I will say that the shoe prints were not dissimilar to those left by the kidnapper in New York and at the bus stop where Mazik was kidnapped. Converse cons, most likely. And the tire treads, too, are indicative of the same model as at the bus stop, the Michelins. Spoken like a true criminalist, though under these circumstances Rhyme would not have objected to a bolder conclusion like, See! It was his shoes and his car. Rossi asked the location of the restaurant exactly, and Ercole answered. Rossi walked to a map and marked it. He said, There are not bus routes there. So following dinner, the colleague, or someone else, would have driven Mazik to the bus stop. The composer followed. Ercole explained that the vehicle had driven past the restaurant and slowed, probably as he saw Mazik and his colleague dining outside. He then drove around the corner, parked, and spied on them. I took samples of the dirt and grass from where he stood and sat. He nodded down at the bags and handed them to Beatrice, who took them in her gloved hands. They had a brief conversation in Italian, a small argument, clearly, which ended with Beatrice shaking her head and Ercole grimacing. She stepped into the lab. Speaking through the branches, his face only partly visible, Ercole continued.
and from the footprints, it seems that he walked to the bushes to get a good look at the restaurant. I am hoping he pushed them aside to see Mazik. Rossi pulled out his phone. I will call an officer with Ali Mazik. We perhaps can find if what you learned helps out his memory. He placed the call and, head down, had a conversation. Gesturing to the large, bushy branch Ercole held in front of him, Spiro said, Do something with that forestry officer. It is as if I am speaking to a tree. Of course, procuratore. He took them into the lab and returned with some notes that, he explained, Beatrice had given him. Apparently concerned that his handwriting was not in vogue, here in the Questura, Ercole dictated. Sachs wrote, Vantage point across road from Ristorante San Giancarlo, thirteen kilometers from D'Abruzzo. Ali Mazik, composer kidnap victim, met with colleague, one hour prior to kidnapping. Companion, ID unknown, Italian most likely, not from Campania, large, dark-complexioned, black hair, wearing dark suit, dusty, smoked foul cigarettes, described as surly. English was spoken, but they try not to speak in front of the waitress. Reference to Trenitalia journey, six hours. Dark car, black, blue, drove past at some point, about one hour before kidnapping at bus stop. Slowed, possibly to examine Mazik and companion. Shoe prints at vantage point. Converse cons, size 45, same as at other scenes. Michelin 205-55R16-91H treadmarks found in vantage point. Trace recovered at vantage point, presently being analyzed. Branches recovered at vantage point, presently being examined for trace and fingerprints. Rossi disconnected his call and looked over the chart. His face bore a wry smile. No, Signor Mazik still remembers nothing of the day or so before the kidnapping, or claims he doesn't. But I think perhaps it is less due to the composer's drugs and the suffocation than to a typical criminal's amnesia. How's that? Rhyme asked. As I mentioned, leaving a refugee camp briefly is not considered a serious offense. But leaving the country of first landfall is. And that's what Mazik was trying to do, it appears. Spiro added, Yes, now the phone calls on Mazik's mobile to and from Bolzano make sense. That is in the South Tyrol, very far north in Italy, not too far from the Austrian border, and about six hours on Trenitalia from here. It would be a good way station for an immigrant desiring to slip out of Italy and into northern European cities, where there are better opportunities for refugees than Italy. This man he dined with, another human smuggler arranging to spirit Mazik out of the country north. For a substantial fee, of course. This is a serious crime, and accordingly he remembers nothing of it. Rhyme noted Ercole's face brighten as he glanced toward the doorway. The blonde flying squad officer Daniela Canton walked briskly into the room, her posture perfect. Officer, Spiro said. She spoke to those assembled in Italian, and Ercole translated for the Americans. She and Giacomo have canvassed for witnesses and looked for CCTVs around the site of the kidnapping, Viale Margherita, but they found nothing. One person thinks he saw a black car late at night, but nothing else about it, and the tabacayo where the composer purchased the Nokia, the one to alert him that the aqueduct facility had been breached? No camera, and the clerks have no memory of who it might have been. Daniela left the room, Ercole's gaze following like a puppy, and then he turned back. They looked over the chart once more. Sachs said, 
So the composer is driving around the countryside looking for a potential target. He sees Mazik and decides to kidnap him. But why, though? Why him? I have a thought, Ercole said, speaking hesitantly. Rossi asked. And what might that be? A glance at Spiro. It takes into account your interest in patterns, procuratore. How? the prosecutor muttered. We've found the drugs, the evidence of electroconvulsive treatment. We know the composer's psychotic. Schizophrenia is one of the common forms of psychosis. These patients truly believe they are doing good. Sometimes the work of God, or alien beings, or mythological figures. Now, on the surface, Mazik and Robert Ellis are very different. A refugee in Italy, and a businessman in New York. But the composer might have become convinced that they are reincarnations of some evil figures. Spiro asked, Mussolini? Billy the Kid? Hitler? Yes, yes, just so. He is justified in killing them to rid the world of their evil, or to get revenge on behalf of a deity or spirit. And the music? The video? Perhaps so other demons or villains will see, and flee back to hell. If they have good internet servers, Spiro muttered. You must have much free time in forestry, Ercole, to study such subjects. He blushed and responded, Procuratore, this particular fact I learned last night, doing some, come si dice, a frown, doing homework. Mythological figures, enlisting the composer to rid the world of evil. Spiro frowned gazing at the newsprint sheet. I think we have not yet stumbled upon a pattern that satisfies me. He regarded his elaborate watch. I have a call to Rome I must make. Without another word, he turned and left the situation room, pulling a cheroot from his pocket. Rhyme's phone hummed with a text. He assumed it was Tom, who had taken a few hours off and was seeing the sights in Naples, but he saw immediately that he was wrong. The text was lengthy, and after reading it, he nodded to Sachs. She took the phone and frowned. What do you think of this, Rhyme? What do I think? He scowled. I think, why the hell now? Chapter 26 Greeting Lincoln Rhyme proved troublesome for some people, such as Charlotte Mackenzie. Should you offer a hand and risk embarrassing a patient unable to reciprocate? Should you not? and embarrass anyway by suggesting you don't want to touch a person who's different. Rhyme could not have cared less, so he had no reaction when, after an awkward glance at the chair, the woman simply nodded and said with a stilted smile that they should keep their distance. She had a cold. This was a common excuse. Rhyme, Sachs, and Tom were meeting with Mackenzie in the U.S. consulate, a white, functional five-story shoebox of a building near Naples Bay. They'd showed their passports to the U.S. Marines downstairs, and been ushered up to the top floor. Mr. Rhyme, the woman said. Captain? Lincoln. Yes, Lincoln. Mackenzie was about fifty-five, with a doughy, grandmotherly face, powdered but otherwise largely makeup-free. Her light hair was short, in the style he believed favored by some famous British actress whose name he could not recall. Mackenzie opened a file folder. Thank you so much for seeing me. Let me explain. I'm a legal liaison officer with the State Department. We work with citizens who've run into legal problems in foreign countries. I'm based in Rome, 
but a situation's come up in Naples, and I flew down here to look into it. I'm hoping you might be able to help. How did you know we were here? Sachs asked. That case, the serial killer? An FBI update went to the embassy and all the consular offices. What's his name, the killer? She asked. We don't know. We're calling him the composer. She offered a concerned furrow of brow. That's right. Bizarre. Kidnapping and that music video. But you saved the victim yesterday, I read. Is he all right? Yes, Rhyme said quickly, preempting Sax and Tom, who might be inclined to explain further. How's it working out with the police of state, or is it Carabinieri? Police of state, working well enough. Rhyme fell silent, and only the lack of a timepiece prevented him from glancing at a wristwatch. He had to convey impatience by a studied lack of interest, but this he was very good at. Mackenzie may have noticed. She got to it. Well, I'm sure you're pressed, so thanks for coming in. Your reputation is significant, Lincoln. You're maybe the best forensic officer in the U.S. U.S. only, he thought, unreasonably offended. He said nothing but offered a cool smile. She said, here's our problem. An American student attending Federico II, the University of Naples, has been arrested for sexual assault. His name's Gary Soames. He and the victim, she's known as Frida S., were at a party here in town. She's a first-term student from Amsterdam. At some point, she passed out and was assaulted. Mackenzie looked up to the doorway. Ah, here. Elena will be able to tell us more. Two others entered the office. The first was a woman in her forties, of athletic build, her hair pinned into a bun, taut, though errant strands escaped. She wore glasses with complex metal and tortoiseshell frames, the sort you'd see in upscale fashion mags. He thought of Beatrice Renza's eyewear. Her outfit was a charcoal gray pinstriped suit with a dark blue blouse open at the neck. Beside her was a short, slim man in a conservative suit, also gray, though lighter. He had thinning, blondish hair. He might have been thirty or fifty. His skin was so pale, Rhyme thought at first he was a person with albinism, though no, it seemed that he just didn't get outside very much. This is Elena Cinelli, Mackenzie said. In slightly accented English, the woman said, I'm an Italian attorney. I specialize in defending foreigners who've been accused of crimes here. Charlotte contacted me about Gary's situation. His family has retained me. The pale man said, Captain Rhyme, Detective Sachs, I'm Daryl Mulberry. I'm with the Community and Public Relations Office here at the Consulate. The inflected tone situated his roots somewhere in the Carolinas, or possibly Tennessee. Seeing that Rhyme's right arm functioned, Mulberry extended his hand and they shook. Rhyme now tempered his criticism of Charlotte Mackenzie, who was dabbing her nose and then fighting down a sneeze. Apparently, she did have a reason for not shaking anyone's hand, gimps included. Mulberry greeted Tom, too and he lifted an eyebrow to Mackenzie, apparently at her win on getting Rhyme into the office, undoubtedly to pitch a request his way. We'll see about that. Please, Mackenzie said, gesturing to a coffee table. Rhyme wheeled close, and everyone else sat around it. I was just filling in our visitors about the arrest. You can explain, Signorina Cinelli, better than I could. Cinelli reiterated some of what Mackenzie had said, then... 
Gary and the victim were drinking quite a bit and becoming romantic, and, to seek privacy, went upstairs to the roof. The victim says she remembers going up there, but soon passed out. The next thing she recalls, it is waking hours later on the roof of an adjoining building, having been sexually assaulted. Gary admits they were up there, but when Frida grew tired, he left her and returned downstairs. There were from time to time witnesses on the roof, at a place where people were smoking, but the adjoining roof where the attack occurred is not visible from there. No one saw or heard the actual attack. Sachs asked, why was Gary implicated? The police received an anonymous call that he seemed to have mixed something into the victim's wine glass. We haven't been able to find out who this person is. On the basis of that call, the police searched his flat and found traces of a date-rape drug, like Rufi? I'm familiar, Rhyme said. And a blood test after the attack revealed that Frida S. had the same drug in her bloodstream. The same drug? Molecularly identical? Or similar? Yes, an important question, Signor Rhyme. But we don't know yet. The samples from his bedroom and in the victim's blood went to the main crime scene facility in Rome for full analysis. When will the results be back? It might be weeks, maybe longer. Rhyme asked. In Gary's bedroom? You said the police found trace. Was it pills? No, the apartment was searched carefully, just residue. The lawyer added, and on the jacket from the party were traces of the victim's hair and DNA. They were making out, Charlotte Mackenzie said. Of course those were there. The date-rape drug, though, well, that's problematic. Cinelli continued. Then there was DNA found vaginally. Not Gary's DNA, though. Frida had been with other men recently, she admitted. That might be the source. Her other partners would be tested, too. DNA tests of the others at the party? In progress. A pause. Then she added, I will say I have talked to a number of people, friends and fellow students of his. They report that Gary fancies himself quite the lover. He has apparently been with dozens of women, and he has been in Italy only a few months. He has no history of being, you might say, coercive, or using date-rape drugs. But he has rather a large appetite sexually, and has bragged about his conquests. And there have been incidents where he was, let us say, kindly, irritated when a woman rejected him. Irrelevant, Sachs said. No, I'm afraid it is not. Our trials in Italy are not as limited as in the U.S., Questions about character and prior behavior, whether or not criminal, are admissible and can sometimes be the pivotal factor in deciding innocence or guilt. Did they know each other before this? Sachs asked. Frida and Gary? No, and she knew few others at the party, only the host and hostess, Dev and Natalia. Would anyone have a motive to implicate him? He said there was a woman who grew furious when he reneged on an offer to take her to America a Valentina Morelli. She is from near Florence, and he doesn't have her address or number. She has not returned my calls. The police seem uninterested in her as a suspect. Where is the investigation now? Rhyme asked. Just beginning, and it will take a long time. Trials in Italy can last for years. It was the community liaison officer, Daryl Mulberry, who said, The press are all over this. 
I'm getting requests for interviews every hour, and newspapers have already convicted him. A glance toward Mackenzie. He said, We want to push back with positive publicity, if you can find anything that even hints someone else was the attacker. Rhyme had wondered what a PR officer was doing here. He supposed the court of public opinion was as universal as DNA and fingerprints. The first person to be hired by a rich criminal in the United States, after his lawyer, was a good spin doctor. Sachs asked, What's your opinion, Miss Chinelli? You've talked to him. Is he innocent? It is my opinion that, yes, he has exercised bad judgment in the past, living a life too lascivious and bragging about it, and he can have the arrogance of someone with charm and good looks, but I do believe he is innocent of this crime. Gary does not seem like a cruel boy, and someone who would knock out a woman and have relations with her is indisputably cruel. What do you want from us specifically? Rhyme asked. Mackenzie looked at Cinelli, who said, A review of the evidence that has been gathered. Their report, I mean. You cannot have access to the evidence itself. And if possible, you might search the scenes again, to the extent you can. All we need is something to point to another suspect. Not a name, necessarily, just the possibility that someone other than Gary committed the crime. To introduce reasonable doubt. Mulberry said, I'll get the buzz going in the media, and that might help get him released pending trial. Mackenzie added, The jail he is being held in is not a bad one. On the whole, Italian prisons are rather decent, but he's charged with rape. Fellow prisoners despise those suspects nearly as much as child molesters. The penitentiary police are watching him, but there have already been threats. A magistrate has the power to release him until trial, if he surrenders his passport, of course, or to place him under house arrest, or, frankly, if the evidence against him proves irrefutable, to allow him to plead guilty and work an arrangement for safe incarceration so he may begin his sentence. Sachs and Rhyme regarded each other. Why now? He glanced into the lawyer's open briefcase and saw an Italian newspaper. He didn't need a translation of the headline to get the gist. Sospetto di violenza sessuale. Below that was a picture of an extremely handsome, collegiate-looking blonde man flanked by police. A Midwestern frat boy. His face was an eerie mix of frightened and bewildered and cocky. Rhyme nodded. All right, we'll do what we can, but our investigation for the serial kidnapper here takes priority. Yes, certainly, Mackenzie said. Her face blossomed with gratitude. Grazie, thank you, from Cinelli. Daryl Mulberry said, About those interviews, would you? No, Rhyme muttered. Elena Cinelli offered, I would recommend against publicly mentioning that Captain Rhyme and Detective Sachs are involved to rhyme. You must be very discreet, for your own sake. The prosecutor handling the case against Gary is a brilliant man, that's not disputed. But he can be difficult and vindictive, and he is cold as ice. Sachs tossed a glance toward rhyme, who asked the lawyer, Is his name by any chance Dante Spiro? Santo cielo, how did you know? Chapter 27 When will it end, she thought, and nearly smiled at the absurdity of that question.
it will never end. This world, her world, was like that abstraction from mathematics class at boarding school so many years, so many lives ago. A Mobius strip, endless. Rania Tasso, in a long gray skirt and high-necked long-sleeve blouse, strode to the front of the Capodichino reception center. At the moment, buses, three of them, sat packed with men, women, children, whose faces were dark, both of color and with uncertainty and fear. Some of those faces were taut with sorrow, too. The weather in the Mediterranean had not been bad in the past week, but the boats they had sailed on, from Tunisia and Libya, from Egypt and Morocco, much farther away, had been pathetically inadequate. Ancient inflatables, rickety wooden vessels, rafts meant for river transit. Often the captain was less competent than a cab driver. A number of these unfortunates had lost someone on the harrowing trip. Family, children, parents, and friends, too. Friends they had made on the journey. Someone in her employ at the camp, she couldn't recall who, people tended not to stay long in the business of asylum seekers, had said the immigrants were like soldiers, people thrown together by impossible circumstance, struggling to complete their mission, and often losing, in an instant, comrades to whom they'd become vitally attached. Rania, the director of the Capodichino Reception Center, was giving orders endlessly, because the work to be done here was endless. She marshaled all her troops, the paid Ministero dell'Interno employees, the volunteers, the police, the soldiers, the UN folks, and the infrastructure workers, being firm, though patient and polite, except perhaps with the insufferable celebrities who had a habit of jetting in from London or Cape Town for a photo opportunity, bragging to the press about their donation, then jetting off to Antibes or Dubai for dinner. Rania walked around a massive pile of life preservers, orange and faded orange, piled like a huge squat traffic cone, and ordered several volunteers to board the buses to dispense bottled water. The month of September had not proved to be a respite from the heat. She surveyed the incoming stream of unfortunates. A sigh. The camp had been intended for twelve hundred. It was now home to nearly three thousand. Despite the attempts to slow immigration from North Africa, primarily Libya, the poor folks kept coming, fleeing rape and poverty and crime and the mad ideology of ISIS and other extremists. You could talk about turning them back. You could talk about setting up camps and protective zones in their origin countries. But those solutions were absurd. They would never happen. No, these people had to escape from land of no hope, as one refugee had referred to his home. Conditions were so dire that nothing would stop them fleeing to beleaguered settlements like hers. This year alone, nearly 70,000 asylum seekers had landed on Italian soil. A voice intruded on her troubled thoughts. There is something I would like to do, please. Rania turned to the woman who had spoken in Arabic. The director scanned the pretty face, the deep brown eyes, the faint hint of makeup on the light mocha skin. The name? Ah, yes, Fatima. Fatima Jabril. Behind her was her husband. His name, Rania recalled, was Khaled, the couple whose intake she herself had processed just the other day. In the husband's arms lay their sleeping daughter, whose name she'd forgotten. Fatima apparently noted the director's frown. This is Muna. 
Yes, that's right. A lovely name. The child's round face was surrounded by a mass of glossy black curls. Fatima continued. Earlier, I was outspoken. The journey was very difficult. I apologize. She glanced back at her husband, who had apparently encouraged her to say this. No, it's not necessary. Fatima continued. We have asked and have been told that you are the director of the camp. That's right. I come to you with a question. In Tripoli, I worked in healthcare. I was a midwife and served as a nurse during the liberation. She would be talking, of course, about the fall of Gaddafi in the months afterward, when the peace and stability so long anticipated and fought for had vanished like water in hot sand. Liberation. What a mockery. I would like to help here in the camp. So many people, pregnant women about to give birth, and sick, too. The burns. Sunburn, she meant. Yes, a week on the Mediterranean with no protection took a terrible toll, especially on young skin. And there were other diseases, too. The camp's sanitation was as good as it could be, but many refugees were racked with illness. I would appreciate that. I will introduce you to the medical center director. She will evaluate you. What are your languages? Other than Arabic, some English. My husband, she nodded to Khaled, who gave an amiable smile. He is good with English. We are teaching Muna both languages, and I am learning Italian. An hour a day at this school here. Rania nearly smiled. The girl was only two and bilingual instruction seemed a bit premature. But Fatima's eyes were hard, and her mouth taut. The director plainly saw that the woman's determination to help and to be granted asylum and assimilate was not a matter for humor. We have no way to pay you, no funds, Fatima said quickly. I don't wish to be paid, I wish to help. Thank you. The refugees were mixed when it came to generosity. Some, like Fatima, volunteered selflessly. Others remained reclusive, and a few were resentful that more was not being done for them, or that the asylum-seeking process took so long. Rania was telling Fatima about the medical center facilities when she happened to look through the fence and saw something that gave her pause. Outside, amid the hundreds of those milling about, reporters, family members, and friends of the refugees, a man stood by himself. He was in the shadows, so she had no clear image of him. But it was obvious he was staring in her direction. The thick-set man wore a cap, the sort American sports figures wore. A cap you didn't see much in Italy, where heads went mostly uncovered. His eyes were obscured with aviator sunglasses. There was something troubling about his pose. Rania knew she had incurred the anger of many people for her devotion to these poor people. Refugees were hugely unpopular among certain segments of the population in the host countries. But he was not standing with the protesters. No, his attention, which seemed focused on Rania herself, appeared to be about something else entirely. Rania said goodbye to Fatim and Khaled and pointed to the medical facility. As the family walked away, Rania pulled her radio off her hip and summoned the head of security, the police of state captain, to meet her fifty meters south of the main gate. Thomas radioed back immediately, saying he was coming. He arrived just two or three minutes later. A problem? A man outside the fence. Something odd about him. Where? 
He was by the Magnolia. She pointed, but the view was blocked by yet another refugee bus crawling along the road. When it passed and the view was clear once again, she could see the man no more. Rania scanned the road and fields bordering the camp, but found no trace. Do you want me to call a team together? She debated. A voice from the office called, Rania, Rania, the shipment of plasma, they can't find it. Jacques needs to talk to you. Jacques from the Red Cross. Another scan of the roadway. Nothing. No, don't bother. Thank you, Thomas. She swiveled about to return to her office and cope with yet another in the endless cascade of crises. Chapter 28 Don't really want it to deflect us too much from the composer, do we now, Sachs? But it's a curious case, an intriguing case. Rhyme, referring to the Gary Soames matter. She gave a wry laugh, a landmine of a case. Ah, because of Dante Spiro, we'll be careful. They were in their secondary situation room, the cafe across the street from the Questura. Sachs, Rhyme, and Tom. Rhyme had tried to order a grappa, but Tom, damn it, had preempted him with sparkling water and coffee for everyone. How was he going to acquire a taste for the liquor if he was denied access? In fairness, however, the cappuccino was good. Ah, here we go. Rhyme noted the lanky figure of Ercole Benelli stride from the police headquarters toward the cafe. He spotted the Americans, crossed the street, stepped past the Cinzano barrier, and sat down on a rickety aluminum chair. Hello, he said formally, the tone revealing his curiosity. The young officer was, of course, wondering why Sachs had called and asked to meet out here. Rhyme asked, Has Beatrice found any prints on the plant leaves or any trace from the composer's surveillance outside the restaurant near D'Abruzzo? Ercole grimaced. The woman is quite insupportabile. You say intolerable? Yes, or insufferable. See. Si. Insufferable is better. I asked her several times of her progress, and she glared at me. And I wish to know if you can fingerprint the bark of a tree. An innocent question. Her expression, frightening, as if saying, Of course you can. What fool doesn't know that? And can she not smile? How difficult is that? Lincoln Rhyme was not one to turn to for sympathy in matters like this. And? he asked impatiently. No, nothing, I'm afraid. Not yet. She and her assistants are working hard, however. I will give her that. Ercole ordered something from the waitress, and a moment later an orange juice appeared. Rhyme said, Well, we have another situation we need help with. You have more developments about our musical kidnapper? No, this is a different case. Different? On the small table before them, Sachs was spreading out documents. Copies of the crime scene reports and interviews regarding the rape Gary Soames was accused of, provided by the lawyer he and his family had retained. We need translations of these reports, Ercole. He looked them over, shuffled through them. How does this connect to the composer? It doesn't. Like I said, it's another case. Another? The officer chewed his lip. He read more carefully. Yes, yes, the American student. This is not one of Massimo Rossi's cases. It's being run by Ispettore Laura Martelli. He nodded at the Questura. Rhyme said nothing more, and Sachs added, We've been asked by a State Department official to review the evidence. The defendant's lawyers convinced the boy is innocent. 
Ercole sipped his orange juice, which, like most non-coffee beverages in Italy, Rhyme had observed, had been served without ice. And Coca-Cola always came with lemon. The forestry officer said, Oh, but no, I cannot do this, I am sorry. As if they'd missed something blatantly obvious. You do not see? This would be un conflitto d'interesse, eh? Rhyme said, not really. No? How is that possible? It would be. No, it might be a conflict of interest if you were working for the police of state directly. But you are technically still a forestry officer, isn't that right? Signor Rhyme, Capitano Rhyme, that is not a defense that will be very persuasive at my trial. Or will stop Prosecutor Spiro from beating me half to death if he finds out. Wait, who is the procuratore? He flipped through the pages and closed his eyes. Mamma mia, Spiro is the prosecutor. No, 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 I cannot do this. If he finds out, he will beat me fully to death. You're exaggerating, Rhyme reassured, though he admitted to himself that Dante Spiro seemed fully capable of a blow or two. Difficult, vindictive, cold as ice. Besides, we're simply asking you to translate. We could hire someone, but it will take too long. We want to look over the evidence quickly, give our assessment, and get back to the composer. There's no reason for Dante to find out. Sachs added, This is very likely a case of an innocent student in jail for a crime he didn't commit. He muttered, Ah, we had a case like that a few years ago, in Perugia. It did not go well for anybody. Rhyme nodded to the file. And the evidence may very well prove Soames is guilty, in which case we will have done the prosecution and the government a service at no charge. Sachs, please, just translation. What's the harm in that? With a resigned look on his face, Ercole pulled the papers forward, and with a glance around, as if Spiro were hiding in the shadows nearby, began to read. Rhyme said, Make a chart, a mini-chart. Sachs dug into her computer bag and pulled out a yellow legal pad. She uncapped a fine-pointed marker and looked toward Ercole. You dictate, and I'll write. I am still an accessory to a crime, he whispered. Rhyme only smiled. Gary Somme's Investigation, Sexual Assault Location of Attack Via Carlo Cataneo, 18, Top Floor Apartment of Natalia Garelli and Roof, Party Victim Attended Via Carlo Cataneo, 20, Roof, Site of Attack Examination of Victim, Frida S. She had experienced minor vaginal bleeding from forceful penetration. Gary's DNA on her neck and cheek. Sweat or saliva, not semen. Within victim's vagina. Cyclomethicone. Cyclomethicone. Polydimethylsiloxane, PDMS. Silicone. Dimethicone copolyol. And tocopherol acetate, vitamin E acetate. Silicone-based lubricant. Probably from Comfort Shore condoms. No match with condoms in Gary's apartment or on person when arrested. Unidentified DNA from single source in vagina. Sweat or saliva, not semen. From attacker applying condom to penis, most likely. No match in Europol, Interpol, or CODIS, U.S., Italian databases. Samples taken from 14 to 29 men present at party reveal no match. Presently scheduling additional tests. Samples will be taken from victims' prior sexual partners. In victims' blood, traces of gamma-hydroxybutyric acid, similar to rehypnol, a date-rape drug. No condom discovered.
Thorough search of neighborhood, trash containers and sewers, five-block radius. Location of implicating evidence, Gary's apartment, bedroom. Jacket worn to party. Contains small traces of gamma-hydroxybutyric acid. Victim's hair. Head hair, not pubic. Victim's DNA, saliva. Additional items of clothing. Shirts, underwear, socks. Contain small traces of gamma-hydroxybutyric acid. Two wine glasses on ledge near the scene of the rape. Gary's DNA on both glasses. Frida's DNA on one. Residue contained traces of gamma-hydroxybutyric acid. Crime scene. Roof of Via Carlo Cateneo 20, next door to Garelli's. Pebbles on roof disturbed where victim was assaulted. Hair of victim. Saliva of victim. No other evidence found. Roof deck of Natalia Garelli's flat, the smoking station. Five wine glasses. No trace of gamma-hydroxybutyric acid. Eight prints. No hits on any national or international databases. No DNA hits in any national or international databases. Two butts of marijuana cigarettes burned down to two-millimeter stubs. No DNA hits in any national or international databases. Seven small plates, traces of food, sweets. Thirteen prints. Two match hostess of party. No hits on any national or international databases. No DNA hits in any national or international databases. Wine bottle on deck table near party. Pino Nero. No trace of gamma-hydroxybutyric acid in remaining wine. Six fingerprints. Hostess of party and two female guests, her boyfriend, Dev Patel. No DNA hits in any national or international databases. Twenty-seven cigarette butts in ashtray and on deck. Four prints matched hostess of party and her boyfriend. Sixteen other prints at smoking station. One positive individual arrested on drug charge six months ago, Puglia. Said individual had left party before the assault. No other hits in any national or international databases. No DNA hits in any national or international databases. When she had finished writing, they looked the pad over. Rhyme reflected. Solid work. He would have liked to have samples of the trace from the deck or roof area where the smoking station was located and from the site of the attack itself, but this was good for starters. Sachs glanced at the dense pages of notes in Italian Ercole was staring at, the official report. Go on she insisted kindly. Please, I want to hear the accounts. Ercole apparently hoped he'd be let off the hook by simply translating the forensics. The witnesses and suspects' statements seemed perhaps, in the young officer's mind, to move his crime into a different category. Reading, he said, Natalia Garelli, 21, attends the University of Naples. She hosted a party in her flat for fellow students and friends. The victim, Frida S., arrived at 10 p.m., alone. She remembered drinking and talking with some people, but was a bit shy. She, too, is a student, just arrived from Holland. She vaguely recalls, around eleven or midnight, the defendant approaching her and talking. They both had glasses of wine at the table where they were sitting. This is downstairs. And Gary kept refilling her glass. Then they embraced and... Limonarato. I do not know. Made out? See, si, made out. He read more. It was crowded, so they went to the roof. Then Frida has no memory until four in the morning, waking on the roof of the adjacent building and realizing she'd been assaulted. She was still quite drugged, but managed to get to the wall separating the two rooftops. She climbed over, fell, and was calling for help. 
Natalia, the hostess, heard her cries and got her downstairs into the apartment. Natalia's boyfriend, Dev, called the police. Investigators checked the door to the roof in the adjoining building, but it was locked and did not appear to have been opened recently. Natalia told police that she suspected Serbian roommates living downstairs in that building. They'd been crude and drank a lot, but the police verified they were out of town and dismissed anyone else in that building as suspects. A few witnesses on the roof, at the table for smoking, the smoking station, saw Gary and Frida together briefly, walking to an alcove on the roof to where there was a bench, but that is out of sight.